The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who hopefully I can cheer off, because he's been left wondering what happened to the fight in his fighting Irish. My extremely depressed co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Andy is back to join Dan in reviewing this week's Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show as we are back to reviewing a full schedule of our favorite shows including Castle, Go On, Modern Family, The Big Bang Theory, Person of Interest, and Fringe. And as expected, we're going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section featuring our thoughts on Justified, New Girl, Elementary, and much more. Yes. But before we get into all of the great television returning for the new year, we have a favorite section of everyone's News with Nico. Joss Whedon confirmed to direct S.H.I.E.L.D. clarifies his role if it goes to series. Since the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV pilot was announced, Joss Whedon has been continually listed as likely directing, but it looks like we can finally make that official in a new interview with the Avengers writer-director. He notes he is currently directing the project for ABC. Whedon wrote the S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot with his brother Jed and sister-in-law Marissa. Jed and Marissa, along with Jeffrey Bell, who worked with Whedon on Angel, will serve as the day-to-day showrunners if S.H.I.E.L.D. is picked up as an ongoing series. Joss, who has an overall deal with Marvel to consult on all their projects for the next three years, on top of writing and directing The Avengers 2, says he would work on S.H.I.E.L.D. as my schedule allows and would help the writers brainstorm stories and review and approve cuts of episodes. That sounds just about perfect to make this a great series. Yeah, he's going to be a busy man. Fringe, Revolution, and Chuck coming to Netflix via a new deal with Warner Brothers TV. Good call. Netflix and Warner Brothers TV have struck a deal today allowing U.S. Netflix members to stream complete previous seasons of dramas produced by the WB. Among the shows coming to Netflix are NBC's Revolution when it ends at the end of this season, A&E's Longmire, ABC's 666 Park Avenue, USA's Political Animals, as well as The Following with Kevin Bacon, which premieres on Fox later this month. Additionally, Netflix is adding hit Warner Brothers television series Fringe Chuck and the West Wing. Yet another huge deal for Netflix and a cheap way to rewatch these great series for us viewers. Well, that'll be good for those people that Michael has been ragging on to watch those shows. Indeed. And for Andy, who wants to get into those shows. Arrested Development confirmed for 14 episodes and premiering in May. The beloved comedy is making an amazing comeback via new episodes, 14 to be precise, a number confirmed by Netflix today as they officially announced the show would debut in May, the exact date to be announced, with all the episodes being released at once. While the Netflix release means people could watch them in any order, Hurwitz noted, there is an order that we have put together to create the maximum amount of surprises. As for those worried about spoilers getting out, Hurwitz remarked, there are going to be surprises that are going to be ruined by spoilers, but that was going to happen anyway, so 
it's happening in one day for hardcore fans. But the stuff exists. It's just out there. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you better mark your calendars for the release date when it com- becomes official and just sit down and watch all 14 that day. Or be forewarned, you may get spoiled. When we know the exact release date, we'll let you know on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Look at it this way. Take the day off. It's only seven hours. Anchorman 2 Heist. Thief makes off with 300000 worth of stuff from the Atlanta set. Oh my gosh. Over the holidays, an enterprising thief broke into a warehouse in northwest Atlanta being rented by Paramount to film the scenes from Will Ferrell's Anchorman, The Legend Continues, and stole 300000 worth of copper wire. Luckily, none of the film props or footage was in the building at the time of the robbery. Anchorman, The Legend Continues is slated to be released in theaters on December twentieth, 2013. Where was Steve Carell to throw a trite at the guy? <laughs> Fox renews Bones for season nine. Oh, in what no. Is, in what is clearly disappointing news for Dan and I here at ATA, the people over at Fox have made the boneheaded decision to keep the atrocity that Bones has become on the air for yet another year. Bones is currently in its eighth season, and Fox would like to remind you that the second half of the eighth season begins on January 14th with a two-hour episode that sees Booth and Brennan go undercover as professional competitive dancers. Well, of course they do, because that sounds like it won't suck that's a two-hour episode yeah a two-hour atrocity god i hate this oh jesus yeah we'll see where we are on reviewing that (laughs) episode finally Sarah Shahi joins Person of Interest. Fairly legal star Sarah Shahi has landed a recurring role on CBS's Person of Interest. The actress will play Shaw, a fearless, sexy, and witty operative in a secret paramilitary organization that tracks and eliminates terrorists before they can act. Said Person of Interest creator, executive producer Jonathan Nolan of the new character. If James Bond and Sarah Connor had a kid, Shaw would kick its ass. Shahi will make her person of interest debut in the February 21st episode called Relevance. She is currently signed for an arc, but the source of the story believes her involvement could potentially stretch into season three. She's a very attractive actress, and I loved her in life with Damian Lewis. So at least we're ending with good news this week as person of interest is adding yet another beautiful and talented actress to its cast. So that, that makes my theories for that show run wild. My thought process real quick is, I think that this is a counter-terrorist group that probably utilizes the machine for the government. They're that group that overlooks the little integral person of interest that we get every week. That's my thought. I Well, they... They take care of the, the the government intel, the non-numbers. Right. When it when it inserts the intel into into normal things, maybe. But what I was thinking is they're going to be brought in to go after Reese and Finch because they're going to think that they're terrorists. Yeah. And so that's my thought is that they're gonna they're gonna go in on their own without machine intel. So that's what I'm thinking. But it, it, regardless, I think it's going to be. She's going to be awesome, and it's going to be really good storytelling. Also, keeping my fingers crossed that she's going to develop into maybe a love interest because we're kind of getting tired of the one they have right now for reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yes, that is the news with Nico. And with that, we're going to go into talking about an episode of Once Upon a Time that really was where I wanted this show to be at the beginning of this season. So I was very pleased with this episode. Got kind of very pleased with the direction the show is going to go now. So here's Andy to join us to talk about the Once Upon a Time episode, The Cricket Game.
Regina is accused of murdering one of the town's most beloved fairytale characters, but only Emma senses that she may, may be innocent. Meanwhile, back in the fairytale land that was, after capturing the evil queen, Snow White and Prince Charming set about planning her public execution in order to rid the land of her murderous tyranny. So it was. This was a really interesting and good returning episode from oh, a yes. hiatus. That was. This was a short hiatus. So like, it felt like it, it felt like it was almost like a week ago. I saw Queen of Hearts almost. Yeah. So it, I, I'm glad that it was a short hiatus because they had a really unnecessary one somewhere in um, you know between I think during the election or whatever. But the first thing I want to talk about is you know Merdina's continuing struggle with using magic and trying to be a good person, and it yeah. seems that it has really come to a rough spot now because of Cora. Yes. And it's an interesting remark because now we know what she meant when she stated in the previous episode that her daughter needed her. So, right. <laughs> uh, mother of the year, as Captain Hook said. Um, yes, great line, uh, by the way. Yeah, I was laughing. You know, yeah. I was laughing because, like, from go- remembering everything that Cora has done so far on the show, you know, like, yeah, yeah. really, but mom of the year, like, mom of the <laughs> land or whatever. Uh, but what do you th- what, what do you think of this um, this aspect? Because this is like one of the biggest storylines of the seasons uh, regarding Regina. Well, it's good that we got back to it because i felt that that paul emma in fairytale world story arc was just a big distraction from it to be honest i mean we know that you know emma has magical capabilities now from that because that was needed and some of those things but i felt that it dragged out a little too long so it was nice to get back into storybrook get back on focusing the th- on the things that we love about this show get interaction between regina and emma because I think yeah. those are some great scenes. Yeah, they they have some great scenes, and you know, it's mostly because of you know Lana Perilia or and Jennifer yes. Morrison's you know, acting. Because I could watch these two act, you know, interact with each other for like hours. I lo- you know, right. I miss that aspect so much. Like because I agree with you because I don't think like the the previous nine episodes hasn't been stellar episode, like, but it, because it's been you know a, se- a se- essential storyline of the season. But like like we mentioned in the previous episode of last time we spoke about once upon a time, is that this episode is that kind of episode that we've been waiting for since the first season finale. Like yes. I love being in Fairytale Land, but like I'm I actually want just I just want to be in Storybrook because that's where everything is happening now. So it was because these two are you know they are two of the most they are two of the core characters of the show so like of course we need to see things like that and i hope we're getting we'll get more and more of this because yeah nine episodes was almost too much you know being away from each other so much right exactly i agree with that and and just you really feel for regina here Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I felt really bad for her. I felt so, so sorry for, like, at Granny's place when they were, you know, when she brought Rosanya and, like, <laughs> Grumpy, really? Like, you know, he's not being discreet at all. Like, you know, what's in it? Poison? Like, yeah. no, it's pepper, whatever. Has that kick or whatever. But uh, <laughs> so, like, I just wanted to go, you know, walk in there and, like, sit with her, like, you know, hey, sup, whatever. Yeah. Because, like, she's trying, you know, because oh, yeah. he, she loves, you know, and that's what I love so much about this. This is a complex villain. Oh, yeah. You know, she wants to sh- change and everything just because of Henry. And that's a beautiful thing, and uh, not really what you expect from a fairy tale, you know, genre. To be right. honest, so kudos to to the writers. I really, real quick about that. I hope Henry is the one that brings her back in to the fold, or you know, because I feel like how this episode ended was Regina got really segregated from everybody else. God, I hope Henry comes in and tries to set things right. Or tells Emma, you know, no, I don't believe this. There's still something fishy going on. I think that's important. Yeah, I I agree totally. And the next point we're going to talk about is the prequel saga, saga as it continues and leads the question to how much is there left not to show regarding Regina's story in the Fairytale Land that was? Because, like, how much do, do they really need to show at this point? Like, you know, because I, 
Yeah. I'm not tired of the flashbacks, but it's starting to grow a little bit old. Yeah, I thought the flashbacks and fairy tale stuff in this episode actually worked better than some of the other ones. Really? And this is the reason why. So much of it, I think the first half of this season, so much of it depended on something with special effects in the fairy tale world. You know, like the giant episode, for example. A lot of that episode depended on the giant. Got us buying into the effects of that. Got things yeah. like this. This was a little less outside the box. Yes, it took place in a fairy tale world or magical setting, but the heart of this story was based on raw human emotions, which we all kind of understand. Yeah. Uh, it's like because I was thinking because you know because on another show that all of us on the, this podcast yeah. loves um, Arrow they 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 have the same concept concept with the island and so on. Like and it's interesting because I'm getting you know. I wonder, like, because I, I got concerned, like, you know, what if I start feeling this about that, that other show as well, like, because with yeah. the flashback things, because I, you know, generally, because for this show, I just want to be in the present now. I'm actually a little bit, you know, because I don't think there's anything left to show, yeah. like, except for, like, a Mulan episode, if that ever happens, uh, because, like, right. how much is there left to show? We know about Rumblestiltskin, we know about Regina, we know about Korra, or like, or maybe perhaps not how she became evil, but whatever, but I don't know. If, maybe um, Maybe this was just not the, the type of um, prequel episode that I wanted. Maybe, you know, because yes. there's been some good ones and some bad ones. But um, moving on to the next point, Emma's continuing first steps into entering the world of magic. Henry, I, I, I'm wondering if Henry is going to have a problem with this. Um, because, well, like, I think if, if it it's shown that it's a bad thing, I think he will. Yeah, we haven't because see, I, seen it really be used in a bad way yet. On a what? We haven't really seen it been used, Emma's magic at least been used in a negative or a bad way to hurt somebody yet. Yeah, I'm just concerned, like, you know, because, like, I could see her becoming addicted to this this power. Yes, that that is very possible. I could see it going there, but not, not too far down the rabbit hole of darkness. You know, we don't want to I... see a Dark Willow situation because Emma <laughs> is the main character of the show. Yeah. You know, she, you know, she's kind of the audience uh, ca- type right. of character. Like, you know, she's like, you know, the one who, you know, asks, you know, because like she, ta- she talks through us, like, you know, like how can this, you know, how can this even be possible and whatever and so on. Well, I was gonna say for you Smallville fans, Emma is kind of the Clark Kent of the series, the Superman, the character that makes everyone around her better. And that was going and- on in this episode, I thought, by her trying to give. Regina the benefit of the doubt most of the way through and giving her that chance and believing in her that she could become good again. The only thing they need to stop is Emma being so gullible all the time. Like as soon as she got any evidence that Regina was bad, it was like, oop, she's bad. That's it. Don't give her a chance. And and Emma's been faked out so many times on this show by magic. I would think she'd know better by now, but that's just me. No, I I agree with you totally, and uh, like you said, uh, I hope this is this won't turn out like a dark willow thing. But it was a fu- fun comparison that you did with Smallwood because she also wears a red jacket. Yes, she does. I'm 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 just saying. Let's move on to the next um la- the last major discussion point, uh, which was the surprising shock of uh, with the twist at the end. What will Cora do with Archie, and will Archie be that easy to break? First of all, thank God that they didn't kill him. Because I know, I, I, was l- I was like, no, I ca- I saw the preview um, images I, or the trailer. Or whatever and I was like no 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 not Archie he's like I don't know why I liked I like this character so much and like I'm so glad that um, Cora didn't uh, kill him but like it's um, it's a mystery now who did she really kill to be honest yeah and that's what's going to keep us coming back I thought that was yeah. a fun little mystery 
tree they set up. I thought it was going to be, um, you know, Smee, actually. Yeah. Because he's the one who can sneak in and, like, get all the secrets and so on. So I was thinking, like, you know, maybe it could it, w- it would be him. But then why would she kidnap him? Because, you know, he, yeah. you know, he is Captain Hook's... Plus, well, Chris, Chris Gauthier, he's too good of an actor uh, yeah. to kill off. We need more speed. Yeah, yeah. But what did you think of the twist? I'm glad Archie's alive. I mean, that's the main thing. I, I don't know if he's going to break. I think he's going to get out or something. It's going to happen. He's yeah. too integral to Regina becoming good again that it would be bad if she killed him off. I'm What I'm kind of hoping for is that Regina takes matters into her own hands, kind of covers the whole mystery, that ends up saving Archie. I think that would be cool. Yeah, that part of the redemption at least. Yes. Because I would love that. Although, Archie, I have to complain about one thing about him. Way to go, you know, keeping your um, you know, patient confiden- confidentiality thing. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't care if, you know, if you're trying to, you know, make Regina look good. You don't go, you don't talk about your patients in public. I'm like, and Emma, you know, she, you should know better. Like, you know, you shouldn't go and ask, you know, it's, it, that's, um, bad Emma, bad Emma. But whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah. um, some small fun parts about this episode. First of all, everything Ruby was wearing in this episode oh, made yeah. it look even more smoking hot. Like, you know, even when she was jogging, I was like, that red top, mm, that, that looks good. And her, um, black outfit in, um, in, at Granny's, that was. I, I really okay. kind of want her and Emma to, like, team up. Like, I like that one episode where she was the deputy for the one episode. I, I love That's one of my favorite episodes of that season. And, and I want that to stay that way. It's just, you've got this conundrum because you have to have David be the hero and, a sec- and essentially be a deputy as well because of how they placed him to the show in this first half of the season. Because I don't you know want what, that I, taken away from him, but... You know what I would love? I would love Ruby, Emma, and Belle team up to become like Storybrooke's own little birds of prey or whatever. There you go. The three sm- most smoking hot women on the show <laughs> teaming up. But uh, that's just me. Um, yeah. Next f- small f- fun part. Um, it's interesting that P- Pong- Pongo doesn't b- bark at Rumpelstiltskin, aka one of the biggest bad guys. Uh, isn't How interesting is that? Uh, like, when did Rumpel become so good with animals? Like, no, I don't care. You know, that's an off-screen, mo- off-screen vil moment that's, that shouldn't have happened. But I think he was like a dog breeder or something before he became Rumpelstiltskin. True, but uh, but also now I think of that. How come that Snow, who's supposedly able to talk to animals, didn't talk to Pongo? Because we wouldn't have gotten to see Red on the screen, Andy, or Ruby on the screen. Right. We we love Ruby. Yes. Um, so we love. Uh, I, I'll let that go. I'll let that go because of that. Yeah, okay. Um, when Charming and Snow and Charming, all the others were sitting around that table and discussing what to do with Rina, you know, something in my, I, I heard Michael screaming in my head, like, oh, meanwhile no. at the kingdom, like, super friends feeling, like, because it looks so cheesy, like, sitting, you know, like, yes. Granny is sitting there and, like, knitting, like, what the heck? And by yeah. the way, Granny curves. Yes, Granny did curse. That was yeah. a little much. Well, it, it kind of had, it's kind of like a Legion of Doom kind of thing. Yeah, but like that was that was mean like meanwhile at the at the kingdom like Legion of Kingdom or whatever. Uh, and last the fun part, Cricket wants pants too. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe uh, Ruby as Wolf saying like you know you know Ruby wants a dress. Whatever. Okay, never never mind. Uh, Last fun part: the beginning of um, uh, the scene at the beginning with Snow and Charming in the bed and Henry walking in. Like, what are you doing in bed? It's like afternoon or what? Did you get a craving for tacos, Andy? I was, I, I got hungry. I was hungry. So I went to my fridge and like started eating some chocolate. My, I actually got hungry. My sister asked me, she goes, so it's winter fairy tale characters in the tacos. Well, you know, but like, it's it's fun because they, they usually used to eating like 
animals like chimeras and something like that that Emma mentioned b- before. Yes. So like, but it was that scene was just so fun because Henry like it was fun. Henry, you're like 11, 12 years old, and you're like you you know you know, you you're one of the most smart people on this uh, in this town. How can you not figure that your gra- your grandmother and your grandfather are you know? I just don't think he wanted to know. <laughs> but hey, you know what? It it was nice to see I was them hel- together. I was helping her. I was helping her rest. Yes. <laughs> they oh. Well, I mean, they hadn't been together essentially for I know. eighteen years, so I get it. I I, I understand. But it was it, it was just it, a fun part, and yes. uh, but but that wraps up the episode. It was a great returning episode. Um, this show is going in the right direction now. We're back indeed. at Storybrooke where it should be. Yeah, indeed. From looking from the trailers from next for next week, it's I think it's just going to get better and better. Yes, God, If you guys had a problem with this first half of the season. Please try to brush it under the rug and move on because the direction it's going now, I really think you should still continue to give it a chance if you're thinking about giving up on it. I think we're going the right way now and it feels like the success that they had in season one is coming back to them, especially with the way this episode started out. So stick with yeah. it. All right. Thanks, Andy, for joining us for another week. It was a great discussion, a lot of fun uh, talking with you once again. And now Nico is back to talk to us about a mid-season premiere that's really got me excited for where this show is going to go. And that's Castle with the episode Significant Others. Castle and Beckett find there are plenty of suspects when a powerful divorce attorney is murdered. Chaos, tension, humor, and awkwardness abound when circumstances bring Castle's ex-wife Meredith and Beckett to both live at the loft. This week's return episode of Castle got a mystery that stood up to the high quality that we've come to expect from this show by giving us a case where a divorce attorney was murdered that went down a lot of different avenues, such as a standard domestic dispute, a homeland meets the bachelor scenario, and an allusion to maybe the O.J. Simpson trial or Tiger Woods that ultimately led to the final outcome of the killer being a woman who changed her identity to get out from underneath the thumb of her celebrity golfer husband named Billy Piper, which also happens to be the name of the actress who played the doctor's companion Rose on Doctor Who. So every time they mentioned his name, I kept expecting a blonde girl to show up with a giant laser gun hanging from her shoulder. Also included with this mystery was an awesome moment where Esposito dropkick a suspect, got an over-the-top scene where a newly divorced couple were destroying their priceless belongings, which I first criticized but then accepted because it distracted us from a key piece of evidence that would have spoiled the mystery if it was revealed so early on in the episode. So with that, Nico, what would you think of the mystery? Dan, the mystery this week was adequate for me. But that's about all I can say about it. Yes, it strung us along and twisted us around enough that we didn't know who the killer was until the very end. But when we got there, I felt that neither the divorce attorney victims nor the the back-from-the-dead ex-wife's motives were compelling or even clear for that matter. Why did the divorce attorney feel she had to uncover her client's fake death as being unfair when she knew she was being abused? Why would the wife care if it was exposed? She had been missing for long enough to be declared dead from her old life. Life anyway, and yes, she may have been fined or possibly faced minor criminal charges for faking her death, which she could have gotten mitigated down after proving the abuse she was suffering. The motives for murder were not strong enough, and I felt really let down by the mystery's conclusion this week. So, Dan, adequate from a storytelling perspective, but really frustrating from a mystery and motivation perspective. Yeah, and the other thing about that is, I don't know if when they wrote this script, if that was the point of it. I think they were mainly focusing on all the fun and goofiness with Castle's ex-wife being back in town. Yeah, but I think at this point in the series, you can't right. let 
the hook with that excuse anymore because they need to be able to need to be able to do both. Yeah, and, and Castle normally does balance it better, I, I think, most of the time. There's a few other episodes where there was a lot of humor, but the mystery was still rock solid. And uh, this one didn't do that. My dad and I kind of had some discrepancies with this mystery as well. I think my dad said one thing to actually more go along the lines of what you were complaining about with this mystery. But he did think that the killer, uh, the golfer's wife, really didn't look anything like her new identity. He thought that was a bit of a stretch. But we did kind of like, again, the motive was bad, but we did kind of like how the killer came across as somewhat of a victim in this murder case. Because all she was trying to do was protect her new life that she built. And I don't know if you caught it, Nico, but Castle gave off this expression in this scene that made him, it, it seemed like he felt bad about it, and it rattled him. And it made me think that that was going to come into play with the Meredith coming to town story. But surprisingly, it went a, I guess, much larger direction and set up some big foreshadowing in the future to come, which we will get to in a bit. But, uh, I mean, what did you think of this? Did you notice this expression from Castle? Am I reading too far in between the lines to hope that this mystery was better than really what it was? I mean, do you have any thoughts on this, Nico? I did see the smirk you're, or the, the look that you were referencing here, but I didn't. I don't think I got the same thing out of it. I think the writers had an idea of using the ex-wife to throw a monkey wrench in things again, and they were going to do it no matter what else went on in this episode. Thus, they wanted this doubt to be put in Castle in the Castle and Beckett relationship, and they felt the final comment by Meredith was how they wanted to do it. So I think that that is why they went that way, rather than possibly having Castle rattled by the case and that causing issues in the relationship. So I think they were going to go this way with Meredith, regardless of what else they might have thrown in there. So, yeah, I, th- I think that there was possibly going to be something else, and maybe they shot to this episode going two ways to like keep it under wraps, you know, how they do that sometimes, but I don't know. I- I'm I, I didn't see it being as important maybe as you did in that thing. And maybe it was just a momentary thing that where he was like, oh, I got to think about something, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Or I don't maybe know it was just answer. the drama of the scene. Yeah, that's true. That fit, the expression fit there. Speaking of Meredith, a.k.a. Castle's ex-wife, a.k.a. Alexis's mom, coming to town, the visit was exactly what the summary for this episode described. Chaos, tension, humor, and awkwardness around. In addition, there's something that Nathan Fillon does with all of his characters throughout the years and his facial expressions, body language, can overall just be jumpy that makes these awkward situations with women highly amusing. I loved it how all the supporting characters got an opportunity to rag on Castle for essentially throwing gasoline out of fire by allowing Meredith to stay at his apartment when Beckett was already living there as a guest. And I think my favorite rag on Castle with this whole situation was Ryan and Esposito's outstanding sound effects. So, Nico, what did you think about the chaos caused by Meredith being back in town? Did you have a favorite moment with the supporting character giving Castle a hard time about letting his current girlfriend and ex-wife both stay underneath the same roof? Dan, I didn't really have a favorite moment because I didn't I didn't really care for the chaos that Meredith brought in this episode. I was looking forward to this episode because I expected it to be more of the redheads ganging up on Castle and also Beckett getting in on the fun, which she did a little bit in that going out to dinner scene. So I guess when they came back from that dinner and he was all jumpy and doing his famous Nathan Fillon stuttering, bumbling, and stumbling routine, that had to probably be my favorite part. But overall, I was disappointed with the whole concept and how they used it 
in reality, I was not a huge fan of this entire episode from a mystery to the chaos to the final conflict slash doubts brought into the Castle and Beckett relationship. So I, I know you were a bigger fan of this episode than I was, but I was pretty let down by it. Well, I don't want to call it doubt. I think it's a challenge. I think a challenge has been issued for Beckett and Castle. No, the way she looked, that brought up doubts. Mm. Whether she's going to doubt the entire relationship, that's still to be seen. But in that moment, she was having doubts and realizing, I don't know this man, which I'll get into that in a moment. But this is this brought up doubts for her, and that's what I didn't like because they've been through so much together right. that it was crap. That's why I want to go with challenge. That's why okay. I want to say challenge instead of doubt. Yeah, but I think I think that in the moment it was doubts. That's why okay. I, I think they can turn it into just being a challenge to the relationship, but it was definitely she had doubts at that moment. Because I really I just don't feel a breakup's going to work no. for this show. No. I feel like that's the kiss of death. And that's yeah. weird me saying that. But this show really, I mean, it's done such a great job. And that's why I want it to be a challenge. Because I think that's more interesting. Right. It, it Yes. It's going to be turned into a just a challenge she has to overcome. Okay. But in this moment, she was having doubts about okay. the relationship. And that just could be to scare everybody. Scare tactics. I mean, if you, if you don't have that in there, there's no interest in watching the show. Mm-hmm. And there's some shipper fans that are more gullible to that stuff than you and I are. Just because we've been through it so many times, we've watched so much, that we're almost immune to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there was this important part of this doubt that we talked about in the final scene where Beckett asks Meredith why it didn't work out with Castle. Because she basically says that she ultimately never knew anything about Castle. Okay, with that thought in mind, there are probably some of you, and myself thinking at this moment, that we've spent five seasons following Castle. We know everything there is to know about the character. But if you really do think about it for a second, we kind of don't. I mean, we know he's a mystery writer. We know he acts like a big kid. He wants to be a good father. And is in love with Detective Kate Beckett. But really, what is the motivation behind all of these things? I mean, we really don't know that. I mean, Castle's motivation behind loving Beckett has been explained beautifully. They've done an excellent job with this on the show. But really, being a mystery writer, acting like the big kid and wanting to be a good father, really all scream daddy issues. As if Castle is using these traits and his abilities as a storyteller to mask the hardship of growing up without a father. Because when it comes down to it, almost everything in his life is somewhat of a piece of fiction, including his name. Although, just because I'm throwing this conspiracy happy theory out there, no one out there, as I said before, needs to panic that the goofball mystery novelist that we love secretly is this dark, brooding man who's going to break up with Beckett. Because, as far as I'm concerned, she's this tough character that's going to be here to stay. Meaning that I think the foreboding tone created for Beckett in learning about these daddy issues comes from the realization that solving her mother's murder isn't the happily ever after for her in Castle now. Since there's many more challenges to face with what I think is going to be a role reversal being on the horizon for the two lovers. In other words, I think this is going to end up being a great move on the part of Castle's writers. Because with the announcement that they are going to wrap up the story behind Beckett's murder at the end of the season, another major story arc needs to be put in its place. And I'm glad to see that they are lying down the threads for it now. Because I think they're doing this to avoid the problems that many other shows have in its sixth season. Of having no idea where to go. And losing their viewers in the process. Which has happened like a lot of our favorites, such as Smallville, Supernatural, and Bones to a certain degree. So I think that they're trying to avoid those pitfalls, and they have avoided a lot of them so far, and I think they're trying to continue to do so. So, Nico, I mean, kind of what's your thoughts on all these observations I have 
And do you have any predictions for the future with this? Are you hoping it's going to be the same as I said? Do you think it's going to go that way? I feel like we're on the same page, but do you think the outcome's going to be different than I do? I'm a little more optimistic than you are. Okay, Dan. So I like your idea that Castle and Becca are in for a role reversal next season when hopefully we get the new overall story arc that we think will yes. deal with the discovering of who his father is and why he left the family when Castle was a kid. That sounds like great stuff for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm all on board with that. What was terrible about this episode was this crap about the fact that Beckett and thus the audience doesn't know anything about Castle. I think okay. that's crap. She knows plenty and probably more in the five years together with Castle than Meredith has found out in the 20 they've known each other. Castle comes to Beckett anytime he has an issue and needs advice. He tells her virtually everything that is going on in his life when it happens. He has professed his love to her and has aired all his dirty laundry when it comes to his ex-wives and past girlfriends, or at least the relevant stuff that needs to be told. She doesn't need to know the itty-bitty stuff or the romantic stuff and things like that. That No, no new girlfriend wants to know that stuff about ex-girlfriends or wives. So the idea that Beckett doesn't know anything about Castle is crap and her all of a sudden doubting their relationship or French, even friendship because she feels like it has been all one way because he hasn't talked about w- one issue, his missing dad. That is bull. Also, this episode made Beckett seem like an insecure, whiny, slightly selfish bitch, which is totally not Kate Beckett. I just really did not like this episode for many, many reasons. And we're way too early in the Castle and Beckett new relationship to shake things up too significantly. And it's understandable that the writers are still trying to hash out the usual early relationship craziness plots before they continue continue on as if the Castle Beckett, the couple that is, becomes just an established thing. But I'm really starting to get a tad exhausted with all the quirks, bumps, and really ill-advised decisions that seem to keep happening week in, week out for the sake of minor relationship drama. They need to get over that crap right now. The writers are better than this. At least the ratings this week were up for the return. I just hope this doubting BS is taken care of in the first scene next week, or it could spoil yet another episode for me next week, or whenever the next time they bring this crap up happens to be. So, as you can see, I was not a big fan of this episode. Yeah, well, I think I think they're going for joking around, and they're having Beckett act like the traditional girlfriend, but she's not. Wouldn't you say I'm, so? I'm fine with the joking around portions, but okay. when they when they brought up the the real stuff, that's when they made Kate Beckett into yeah. an insecure, which she is not. She's one of the right. most confident secure women we've we see on television you know she's like bones before the massive makeover you know i mean with feelings but i mean that strong of a character you know and so it just was completely out of her character to be a jealous insecure you know whiny bitch (laughs) yeah (laughs) really but Uh, but it's contained within this episode at this point right yeah it is okay this is not I'm not saying that they've ruined the character. I'm just saying that this was insanity. It was okay. not it was not Kate Beckett. It was like they replaced Kate Beckett with right. some, you know, teenage angst girl. It's just bad in my opinion. Yeah, and the thing about not knowing about Castle, because I, I maybe should have rephrased it as not knowing about his past. We know about him right now. But his past but to get his past really hasn't been relevant 
into what's been going on on the show. But he's talked about raising Alexis and being a single dad and doing it all on his own and taking care of his mother and talked about growing. He has talked a little bit about having Christmas all by just him and his mom and how that's why Christmas was so special to him. As things come up, he would talk about that. And that's organic. You know, that's the way real relationships, you don't go in and after you date for six months, you're like, okay, we're going to sit down. We're going to have a come to Jesus moment and tell each other absolutely everything that's ever happened in our lives. You, it comes out like the first time you guys go to a movie, you might talk about movies you've gone and seen and who you saw them with and, and what's your favorite movie. You know, the first time you guys go camping, it, you talk about where you learned to camp, when you, what you did with your dad, Boy Scouts, things like that. Yeah. It just comes up. It's not like you sit down and you spend a week explaining everything that ever happened in your life right. and then you're like, okay, now we know each other. No, yeah. it's a getting to know thing and they've been – they know everything there is to know about everything that's happened to them in the five years they've known each other. But there are a lot of things that haven't come up and if there's something you want to know, you ask. You don't just – Oh, he never told me because he should know that I want to know that. That's bullcrap. I think they're trying to foreshadow for the second half of the season to get yeah. people watching. That's that's what they're going for. I don't think they might have not even noticed that they got off with the characters, which is that's that's bad too. But that's what I'm saying. I feel like they were thinking about the future of this episode, but not looking at the here and now. They were jumping ahead. Can I hey. jump the gun too? Okay. So I, I think that's where it is. And it's good for you to say, "Whoa, everybody, let's get back to the present. Let's do that." But you, you, it is, I guess you're you're getting the foreboding tone with the future for the show a little. No, it's just well, I didn't like this episode, okay. and I think that they really made mistakes in this episode. Okay. Next week, it's gonna be a whole new episode, and I just am worried that they're gonna they're gonna mess up another episode by having to deal with this through a whole episode. This doubt that I brought up. If they just get it out of the way early, they and they could, they have a talk or something early in the episode, it resolves everything for me. I think it needs to come up next week. Yeah. And I think it needs to be maybe a part of the story or slipped in there somehow. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I feel like her, like, going the whole episode, having this problem, like, oh, I know something about Cass, but I'm nervous to tell him about it. If you're nervous to ask him about it, I'm going to have a problem with that, too. Yeah. Like, oh, I hope that's not the story. I hope it, it, it's a natural thing that comes up at the same time, you know? Exactly. It just happens naturally, I guess. So, yeah, I'm hoping that there's a good episode for you next week. I'm satisfied. And this was a subpar episode. This was a great, like, the Christmas episode. So they do need a kind of a comeback episode. But coming back from mid-season, I always feel like the episode's weaker. You know, it just doesn't have an oof that a, a season finale, I mean, season premiere has. So I think oh. we're building up to something bigger. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about a sitcom that I felt had a strong comeback episode. To get it might have creeped Nico out a little bit since it did focus on a character that kind of disturbs him. But we'll talk about this episode anyway, because I thought it was fun. Because that's the go-on episode, When It All Cost Us. Bob Custis asks Ryan to join his new TV show. Meanwhile, Mr. K tries to make a difference in the group. And returning from hiatus, Matthew Perry's Go On seems to have kept the success train running. Because my favorite part of this episode was Bob Costas. This is Bob Costas. Because it was fun to see a sports anchor of such integrity let loose and make fun of himself. In addition, God 
I mean Bob, being fascinated by a creeper like Mr. K, who's his complete opposite, was a great comedic twist that paid off nicely with Bob trying to incorporate philosophy into his new show, and ultimately deciding that it sucked. Also, other funny moments worth mentioning was the bullfighter outfit Danny wore to Fosta's party, especially the shoes. Got Mr. K trying to replace Ryan's wife, Janie, by making Ryan a dinner casserole made out of cereal. Yes, I know this is downright stupid, but it made me chuckle anyway. So I guess there were laughs everywhere in this episode, and I loved it. So Nico, what's your favorite comedic moment from this week's Laugh out loud, go on. Dan, I have to agree that Owen's prank on Danny and getting him to show up to the yes. party as a bullfighter was classic. But I think my favorite part of the episode was the Bob Costas voicemails, yes. especially when they auto-tuned it into a song. Big, big fan. Hey, Ryan. This is Bob Costas. Call me back when you get a second, okay? Hey, Ryan. I love technology. Great stuff. I also liked Rich Eisen being like a nemesis to Ryan. I thought that brought up a good possible future crossover with Rich Eisen, and that was fun. Yes, it was. It was a lot of fun at his line about being on e- leaving ESPN was great as well. When people leave ESPN, they're angry, deranged. What does Chris Berman do to them? My dad laughed especially hard at that because he really doesn't like Chris Berman. So he was laughing pretty hard at that line. But a great comeback for this episode. It just keeps getting better. Doing it for the show, it keeps getting better. So with that, we're going to move on to a sitcom that I'm kind of feeling it's losing a little bit of steam here. But we'll get your verdict on that, Nico, when we talk. Because that's the Modern Family episode, New Year's Eve. Jay plans for the family to ring in the New Year's at a Palm Springs hotel, but it's not a very happy one when the accommodations leave something to be desired, though his luck just might have changed after he runs into actor Billy D. Williams. Meanwhile, Haley and Alex have a memorable babysitting adventure. The big question I have about this week's episode of Modern Family is what happened to the birth of Glorious Baby? I mean, the way the promos for this episode were set up indicated that the baby was going to be born with the return from mid-season hiatus. But now it seems like they want to milk this thing to tell the season finale to keep people watching this show. Because Modern Family, in my book, seems to be losing steam compared to a veteran show like The Big Bang Theory or newcomers like Go On and New Girl. And I don't know if it's just me, but this episode seemed to support this philosophy by being some par on the laughs, to the point that I had a hard time selecting my favorite comedic moment. There were parts with Luke and Manny that made me chuckle, but nothing really stuck out to me until the very end, where Phil got excited because he recognized Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian, and Billy D. thought he was Mitchell. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? Dan, my favorite comedic moment would have to be either Lando Calrissian himself, Billy D. Williams, guest spot. Not because he was particularly funny, just because I got a kick out of it, me being a huge Star Wars fan. Also, I love that Phil and Claire's romantic spot got invaded by the Nude Year's Eve party. That was that was actually kind of a little funny. But my favorite line of the episode was when Cam said about Claire. Oh, gosh, we should start calling her Ranch House because she doesn't have a second story. Uh, yes. that, that was so corny, I laughed hard. Yeah. I mean, really, it, it was good. You know, I like Luke and Manny, and their stuff was, was chuckle-worthy, but nothing really laugh out loud. You have to keep your door open. Why? Well, why do you need it closed? Because we're going to make out. Oh, um, well, you, you can't have your door closed. Why? Do you want to watch or something? That's weird. Ew, Ew. of course we don't want to watch. Perfect. Right. And I think that's what this show is is 
doing. I think it's focusing more on the drama and becoming more of a dramedy rather than a comedy. Okay. And I'm okay with that. If 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 that's what we know we're get, getting into, and I I do like some of the drama that is happening. You know, I like the progression of the Haley and Alex story. They're becoming more as uh, Haley grows up. Alex and her finally have some common ground. They kind of see each other for what they are rather than sisters who are always getting on each other's nerves. There's going to be that as well, but I think they're going to grow together, especially like they did in this episode. I think we're going to see a lot of funny stuff from Luke because that's his thing. Phil and Luke are good for the comedy. I think Mitchell and Claire are good for drama. Jay is good for both. And Gloria is good for both as well. So I think we're going to see it turn a little more dramatic than just being exclusively comedic. Yeah, and looking at it that way, this was going to be a pretty decent episode. Yeah. Um, It's just when you see a half an hour show, your brain immediately goes to sitcom and jokes. Yeah. And so it's it's tricky to switch. I know you had that difficulty with How I Met Your Mother. But the thing with that show was it was established for, what was it, six seasons? Seven seasons being funny. Yeah. And then going really serious was weird. This well, the is, go thing ahead. That your mother was that it was trying to be the comedy still and throw in some drama. And I think Modern Family is maybe going more of a, a real switch. Maybe yeah. I'm. I'm um, maybe I'm hopeful for that, right. and that's why I'm seeing it. But I think the way Modern Family is doing it is better than the way How I Met Your Mother did it. Yeah, and I think they're early enough into the show that they can change and evolve without it feeling jarring okay. or weird. So, yeah, it's a good point. Good observation you made on that one, Nico. Um, I hope our fans of the show are seeing that, too. They're listening to this podcast. So with that, I think it's time to move on to another sitcom that we know is all about being funny. It probably is not going to change from that. And that's The Big Bang Theory, entitled The Bakersfield Expedition. The guys have a road trip in order to attend a Comic-Con convention dressed as Star Trek The Next Generation characters. Stopping to take some pictures in costume, Leonard's car is stolen. Meanwhile, the girls are at home trying to figure out a comic book. As a huge fanboy, I was totally invested in both the highly relatable comedic plot lines that made up this episode, with the guy stranded on the side of the road dressed as Star Trek The Next Generation characters, and the girls trying to figure out comic books. But I'd have to say my favorite comedic moment was the lie from Raj, asking if the rental car that was going to get them out of their unfortunate situation was from Enterprise. Did we at least rent the car from Enterprise? (laughs) Get it? Enterprise. (laughs) Screw you, that's funny. Yes, an idiot could have come up with that joke, but it was great irony to top off what I thought was a hilarious spotlight, even if you're not a Star Trek fan. Also, I've got to say, I love seeing Raj dressed up as my favorite Star Trek, the next generation character, Worf. God, this may be a conversation for the DC Nation podcast, but what was up with the girls' plotline making all those Marvel references? Should they be talking about DC Comics, since the Big Bang Theory is a Warner Brothers produced show? So with that, I've got to ask, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's outstanding episode of the Big Bang Theory? Dan, my favorite comedic moment would also have to be the fellas cosplaying as an away team from Star Trek The Next Generation and getting stranded on a a desert planet to have an adventure of their own. Unfortunately, it was not what they had fantasized about. I also really enjoyed the Sheldon's voice hack for the GPS and all the random facts he inserted into the GPS directions. Leonard, bear left and continue. 
continue on Interstate 210. Ooh, sounds like that fella knows what he's talking about. I put on my listening ears if I were you. What did you do? I found a hack online. I was able to upload MP3 recordings of my voice to your GPS. That is so cool. Counterpoint, no, it's not. Though all the interesting facts were common knowledge items and really not trivia worthy at all, in my opinion, everyone knows that Eisenhower was, was the president that signed the bill that created the interstate system. That's why it's called the Eisenhower Interstate System. <laughs> and if you don't know that odd number interstates go north and south and even numbered interstates go east and west, then you just aren't paying attention. Come on. But still, it was a funny gag. Yes. Yes, it was an enjoyable episode. Uh, just a fun comic book thing all around. Actually kind of reminded me a little bit of, I don't know if you ever saw the Twilight Zone episode where the spaceship crashes in the desert and they think they're on a, a foreign planet and they all end up like killing each other. And, no, it's still. Okay, and uh, what happens at the end is the last survivor ends up, you know, killing everybody, and they find the road and realize, and the astronaut realizes he just murdered his entire crew. And so it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, if you're a Twilight Zone fan, check that out. But with that, we're going to move on to talking about uh, drama now that really is getting us fired up for the rest of the season. I had a great introduction to a villain, and there was really a lot to discuss about it because it was just highly entertaining. Because that's the person of interest episode, The Prisoner's Dilemma. While Carter tries to maintain her cover as an FBI temporary agent while helping Reese, Fusco has to protect a new number on his own while Reese ducks some old enemies from the past. With last week's mid-season premiere, many viewers were left wanting more because Reese was left sidelined in prison. And the plotline of Fridge conspiring a high school students had some pitfalls, which Nico pointed out to us. However, this episode made up for it tenfold. As we did get the action-packed jailbreak we expected, but the intensity certainly was there because this episode showed us why it's vital for John Reese to be out of the world especially with a villain on the rise to threaten New York City with possibly another attack on the level of 9-11 at least that's what I think is going to happen first off got our discussion about this great episode hats off to the writers on making Agent Donnelly a worthy adversary to Finch because he kept throwing in a curveball every time we thought Finch had Reese in the clear in addition, I really liked the scene where Donnelly and Fitch were dueling with their computers, where Fitch was racing to change Reese's background before Donnelly could look it up. The way this was paced seemed to capture the edge of your seat intensity that was needed in this episode, without having to do a guns-blazing jailbreak. That's uncharacteristic for the show. But I did smile when the writers alluded to the concept with the brief comedic relief scene where Fitch was gearing up to go and get Reese. So, Nico, did you think Agent Donnelly was a worthy adversary in this episode? Were you amused by the joke with Fitch that alluded to a full-blown jailbreak? Yeah, Donnelly was a worthy adversary in the end, because by seemingly being too inept or clueless to actually catch Reese, but smart enough to keep throwing the proverbial curveball into Finch and Carter's plans, he was able to ultimately not only catch Reese, but Carter as well. In doing so, before unceremoniously being executed by Kara Stanton, he proved a worthy adversary to Reese and Finch. Also, I couldn't help but chuckle at the scene where Finch was getting all decked out in his assault gear to bust Reese out of prison, and Carter just let him walk out instead. <laughs> it was definitely chuckle-worthy. Yes, yes, it was. And, you know, it, it's fun to see those kind of buddy moments with Finch and, and Reese, too. You know, they, as we said, the season, they've really been established as friends. And here, Finch 
show just how much he cared about him by willing to do something crazy to save his friend. Right. Speaking of worthy adversaries, Goliath returned to this episode, protecting Reese from another one of his old enemies, telling our hero that he's gotten over being sent to prison, and he's not going to kill Reese because he owes him for saving his life. Can I wholeheartedly believe Elias is telling the truth on this matter, especially after he saved Reese from being beat to death? But I still believe he's planning to take his weekly chess game with Fitch beyond the game board to use New York City as their playing field, with Fitch and Reese fighting for the power of the people, got Elias fighting for power over organized crime. Although this is probably going to be a plot line left for season three, because I think Elias will remain an ally for this season, because he's probably going to be against the new big bads, guys in Karastantin's, plan to annihilate New York City. Since if it succeeds, there's probably going to be nothing left for him to control. Now, even though all the scenes with Elias on the show are great, it can certainly send a chill up my spine. But before we get to that, God, Nico, I mean, what did you think of Elias' role in this episode? Kind of that plot line, that twist, and kind of similar to my crackpot theory with what's to come with him. I liked seeing Elias in this episode. He, we, we love, we love the actor absolutely. Enrico yes. Colatoni is is one of the the best character actors out there, and he's even a leading man sometimes. So really, a great actor. So when he comes to the show, it just really steps everything up. I think Elias is probably my favorite villain so far that we've had. I, I mean, the Kara Stanton, we'll, we'll talk about her in a minute, and I think she has a potential of being very well, very good as well. But when he came and and showed up in this episode we we kind of figured it was going to happen but it was still yeah. it was very good very interesting and i like the fact that Reese saved his life in that first scene before he knew who he was and before he was as powerful as he is now so there is still that little bit of part of elias that says i can't kill you you know I, i'll go up against you i'll fight against you and and you're going to ruin some of my plans and i'm going to ruin some of yours but i won't kill you because you saved my life and there's a little piece of me that will always remember you saved my life and i'm going to return the favor here and i really like that it very much you know fits the superhero mold you have professor xavier and magneto you know it very you know they're they're friends not that these guys are friends, but, you know, they have that connection very much. And so I love this this setup, you know, and how their relationship kind of works. Because Reese has had to go to Elias before, you know, in that baby episode. Yep. And Elias screwed him, sort of, but he kept his word and the baby was saved, you know. And so they have this working relationship that they won't ever kill each other. But at the same time, they don't always do what's great for the other. And so that right. it's. It's, it was good seeing that kind of come out here and how he kind of saved him just with a whistle, you know, so in, do, the, in do, the scene. But do you think that idea of him challenging them again is going to happen? Yes, I think that they're going to go head to head when it comes to control of New York. And yeah. Elias is going to he when he gets out of prison, he's going to want to take over or or continue his monopoly of the organized crime in New York City. And so Reese is going to be going up against him. But I think there's going to be this kind of idea that neither one will ever take the other one out. Right. There's going to be a professional respect. They might foil each other's plans, but they'll never go and assassinate the other one. Plus, I just feel like Elias wants to test his mind for his intellect up against Finch's. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He respects Reese for, for saving his life, 
but he wants that challenge of Finch. And he feels like Finch is the only one out there that he's met that can really challenge him. Right. Now, even though all these seeds with Elias on the show as a whole are great, could certainly send a chill up my spine. I think the most powerful seeds in this episode came from Carter interrogating Reese. Guys, his cleverness at being able to answer every question she threw at him honestly strengthened the bond between these characters. In fact, I think the same strengthening can be applied to our relationship with Reese as viewers. With the backstory he revealed in these interrogations, establishing the guy as almost television's modern-day American hero. Because like our country, John Reese was forever changed by the September 11th attacks, somewhat losing his way for a while. But now, thanks to Finch, he's back on track to fight for as close as he could get to the American dream. And that's why audiences have connected with this show on such a successful level. Because Reese and really all the heroic characters on the show give us the hope that it's still worth fighting to achieve the American dream here within the real world. Now, Nico, do you think I'm onto something with the show giving this optimistic commentary on America through its characters? And did these interrogation scenes have as big of an impact on you as they did with me and hopefully the rest of the show's audience? Dan, I don't think I see the show as an optimistic commentary on America that you're advocating here. I just don't see it. I see Reese, Finch, Carter, and even Fusco as heroes for sure, but I don't see their struggles as an optimistic commentary on the fight for the American dream. I see it as a hero's journey, devoid of politics, American values, or even overarching ideals besides good versus evil. It is a struggle to right the wrongs of the world and in the process for our heroes to find redemption in doing good work for people they don't even know. Now, as for the interrogation scenes, I thought they were great, but not because they in themselves gave us gave us such an insight into Reese, which they did give us an insight, but because the that insight was strengthened by the great incorporation of the flashbacks this week and how well they meshed with the questions and topics that Carter was investigating in her fake interrogation. So once again, this show has taken the flashback sequences and incorporated them seamlessly in a way that completely enhances the storytelling. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I mean, I just feel like, you know, with, with Reese, it was kind of a... I, I do feel like a lot of the superhero and heroic characters that are out there reflect the times mm-hmm. and what's going on. I think Captain America greatly affected World War II. Yep. And that thing. And I just feel like Reese is someone that's come out of the mold of post 9 11 America and what's going on and some of the challenges people are facing. Right. But I don't think. I guess what I'm what I was saying is I don't think that they're fighting for the American dream. Okay. Like maybe they're in, maybe they inspire the common man, and that might be what you're getting. Yeah, at, I think that's that, that's yeah. Okay, but they're not in themselves fighting for the American dream because I don't think Reese believes that he will come out of this alive. I think he thinks that he will die in the service of saving others. And one of these times he won't be able to save a number and it'll, and he'll die trying. I think that is where his mindset is. Finch, I think he has devoted his life to saving others because he couldn't save Nathan and he couldn't save himself in a sense. He had to fake his death. I think Carter has nightmares or regrets about her time as an interrogator and some of the horrors that she saw to get information to save American soldiers. I think Fusco is is fighting to to become a clean cop again, to to be what he was before he went dirty. And 
to really get out from under the thumb of HR. So each of these people are fighting for their redemption, as I said, but not necessarily the American dream or the American ideals or political ideals or anything like that. It's just they're trying to do good to combat the evil that they feel that they've done in their life. Well, maybe, you know, the American dream, I mean, in, in my mind, and this is how I see it, is kind of almost a sense of normalcy, as you put it. The the idea that, you know, Reese now is, yes, he's saving lives, and yes, he's shooting people and doing a lot of violent things and stuff that we wouldn't do normally in our lives, but he has almost like, a, you know, a job now, you know, a place to live. He's more fighting back with, more trying to get himself back with in society, as close as he can. Okay. And so that that's, I guess, more what I'm saying is he, his life was turned upside down by September 11th, by an event. And now, you know, it's back in order as, as close as he can get it to be. And I feel like, you know, uh, an event like 9-11 turned a lot of people upside down. Got their direct, you know, and where they were going and now they've found direction again. So I guess, I guess you could say it's trying to find a sense of normalcy from a traumatic event. In the case of this show, it just happens to be 9-11, but there's other superhero stories that we know have to do with the death of a character's parents, or them being captured as a prisoner of war. I mean, there's a lot of other motivations. Again, Reese's happens to be that particular situation. Okay. Yeah. So, as for scenes that you might have thought was unnecessary in this episode, but even you listeners might go with the side story of Fusco protecting the supermodel, but despite its over-the-top nature, I felt it was a solid use of comic relief to give us a breather from the intensity that was going on in the interrogation room, and maintained the concept that even though Reese and Finch may have personal issues to deal with throughout the course of this show, there's always going to be persons of interest. In addition, we normally miss the always lovable Fusco when he is not in an episode. So I'd rather take a goofy story with his character rather than not have him in the episode at all. Nico, did you have thoughts on the Fusco side story or could you have done without it? The only reason I felt this was necessary this week was to make sure that every episode dealt with a number. Yes, they brought the Agent Donnelly number in at the end, but otherwise if you cut this side mission with Fusco, then you lose the number of the week aspect of the show and that would have been a major misstep. Otherwise, this was a pretty worthless side mission for Fusco, but it did bring him into the show and gave us a few laughs. So I'm not going to harp on it because I do think it was necessary. As I think we've hit on the head several times already in this discussion, person of interest for this week was intense. But there was something that normally happens around the halfway point that was missing. The classic twist of the week. At a point in this episode, I thought they were to go without one, which was fine as I was satisfied with the episode. But as the popular music started playing to give us the idea that the episode was closing up, got Reese and Carter had their little heart-to-heart overviewing their experience together, Dolly shows up to arrest them. Got I was shocked to see that my DVR was only at the 45-minute mark. Then after I picked myself up off the floor in shock, I began thinking Reese and Carter should totally know better than to meet up again on what I think was the same day he was released from prison. But to make myself feel better, I'm just going to make the assessment that the writers sacrificed logistics for compelling storytelling. Because every hour-long drama begins with a scene where the two main characters get episode focuses on reflects on the conflict they experienced. So they were giving us the feel that the episode was ending to surprise us with Dolly showing up. So, Nico, were you surprised that Dolly showed up to arrest Reese and Carter? Did you share my discrepancies with this moment? Dan, I was not surprised. 
I actually commented on the stupidity of them meeting up at the end of the episode. And so we here were expecting Donnelly to still be trailing them. It was very poor operational security on both Reese and Carter's parts and just plain stupid of them. Reese should know better and make sure that he was not followed and his asset was not followed before initiating contact. Really poor tradecraft on Reese's part. Or maybe it was major props to Donnelly for his stealthy tailing of Carter. But more than likely, it was sloppy or lazy work by Carter and Reese. Yeah, and maybe it was just running out of time <laughs> yeah. from the writers. Like they're like, we have to get Dolly here. How do we do that? Okay, we'll just go with this. Yeah, I would have been better if he had slipped some sort of a tracking device on Carter's thing, and we had seen him do it earlier yeah. in the episode, or or they showed like a flash you know, a flash to give us, oh, okay, he did do this, and it was actually smart, and they didn't do anything overtly stupid other than the fact that they met the same day he got out of prison. Well, and maybe they just did a poor job with us to get us to let our guard down to the real twist of the week for this episode. Right. And that was the machine making the entire block of payphones ring, almost as if it was going to panic to tell Finch that Donnelly was a person of interest. Unfortunately, despite quick thinking to give him a warning, Donnelly's SUV with Carter and Reese inside gets flipped over by a semi. And out of the vehicle steps Reese's old partner, Kara, who shoots Dolly in the head. Can I think of Ducks Reese? I, I'm pretty sure that's what happened there. She yeah, did inject so. him with something. And then it kind of ended. So I'm assuming she abducted him following that. Now, with this being yet another great introduction to a major villain, I was kind of sad to see Dolly go because the scene just before his SUV got hit set up a theme for his character that would have been interesting to see explored. And that was Dolly not willing to believe Carter was helping Reese just because he was a good man. But maybe that sense of paranoia surrounding the idea that anyone can be brought for the right price will be transferred on to Kara. Because some of the motivation behind what I think is her desire to pop the September 11th attacks by wiping out New York City with probably a nuclear bomb. Also, even though I know she wants revenge on Reese, I foresee Kara being set up as a nemesis for Carter, because she did kill Donnelly, who I believe uh, Carter saw as one of her partners, and kidnapped Reese. Plus, Kara had a completely negative influence on Reese, where Carter has made a positive one. And then there's the excitement of Carter going up against a villain in Kara, who pretty much outmatches her. So, Nico, what was your thoughts on Kara's big entrance? as probably season two's major villain. And what do you foresee happening in the future with this rising conflict? Yeah, Dan, in reality, or at least in my opinion, I sort of feel like this wasn't Kara's big entrance as season two major villain or big bad, because we've seen her so many times already in Reese's flashbacks, which this week shed light on his dysfunctional partnership with her. And if we weren't sure already, we learned that Kara Stanton makes our psycho ex-girlfriends look completely sane. She's equal in super spy skill to Reese, but just a wee bit crazy and up for total immersion in her role. She loves being a killer. This woman has all the stability of a radioactive isotope, and in the present time, she has revenge on her mind as she's hunting down those responsible for her attempted murder. You know, back in China, when the government sent a couple hundred tons of explosives to meet her and Reese at their last known location, all scenes we'd seen before, but we got to see it again just to refresh our minds in case we had forgotten that important detail. So it was hardly shocking that after appearing in a series of flashbacks throughout this episode, Stanton would show up to free 
Terry Reese after he was recaptured by Donnelly. Bang, bang, a couple shots to the head and Donnelly's dead. And the episode ended with Stanton tranquilizing Reese and hauling him off for who knows what. I probably missed something in all these flashbacks because I still don't exactly know what Stanton wants with Reese or why she's after him. Her first priority is, of course, the the government guys that tried to kill both of them. But she's probably not pleased with Reese because he never said anything about his orders to kill her. And so thus he's guilty by association with the guys who sent him to kill her. But she has to realize that Reese was set up just like her. So I'm missing the motivation for revenge uh, towards Reese. And maybe you're right. Maybe she's just going to be this big bad. And maybe I'm right that she's gone completely crazy. And now she's going after America because they're the government that sent people to kill her. So I, I, I'm not really sure what her motivation is right now, other than to get back at the people who tried to kill her. Well, I think what she's going for is she just wants a reason to keep killing Okay. And I think she wants to set up another conflict for America to have, so she'll continue to keep killing. So you think she wants to come in back in from the cold and be a, a full CIA operative again in the next war? Yes. Okay. And she wants to start the war. Right. Yeah, she's going to start to have it. Now, the other thing is, I think she may have some sort of obsession with Reese, that she wants him to almost be like her. And to show him that there's no other choice. Okay. Because, you know, yeah. it, it was really getting on her nerves how he kept acting like the Boy Scout. Right. And she wanted to kill her to come out. So I feel like that's also what she's trying to do. So I feel like she's kidnapping him to try to bring the killer back out. Yeah, that's a great idea. I like that. Now, the thing is, is he going to succumb to that or not? I don't think so. Okay. I think he's beyond the point of reverting to that man. He's changed, and the purpose he's been given is something he believes in enough that he would rather die than betray it. Okay. So I don't think we're going to see him become... Now, he may try and play Kara... And he may seem like he's gone r- yeah. rogue or gone bad, but his heart will always be in the mission. I agree with that. That's that's a real good point. But I, I do think she's going to try to make him go be- revert back. And when she discovers that there's no going back, then it's going to be on like doggy cock. Yeah, she's going to try and pull the same thing she did with Agent Snow, where she's going to manipulate right. him and force Reese to be her killer or her her partner again. But I I don't think it's going to work. Right. I I think Carter is going to stop her. I think there's a big thing with Carter defeating her, overcoming her, what she's trying to do in some way. Sure. I just I just think that's that's a big thing. And, and, you know, it's I feel like each character kind of has their nemesis in a way and they haven't really established one for her yet. So I think that's what she is. Yeah, I like that idea. That's a great possibility. Because I feel like Fusco has the HR guy. Yep. Finch has Root. Yep. Reese has the Elias plotline. Yep. And Carter's got Kara, who also have an influence on Reese, too. Because I feel like Carter, although she's not a love interest, has had almost the opposite effect on Reese that Kara did. Yes, very much so. Carter's bringing out the Boy Scout, but Kara's bringing out the killer. Uh-huh. And so there, that's where the conflict lies between the two of them. Couldn't agree more. And one last thing, because this is kind of a sci-fi thing. It's a crackpot theory. I'm not sure how it's all going to come together. And I just kind of wanted to throw this out there and see what you thought, Nico. Do you think that possibly before the events of the pilot, that the machine somehow calculated that a terrorist attack from Kara was coming and used person of interest numbers to get Finch connected with Reese, Fusco, Carter, and maybe even bad guys like Elias? Because it assessed that 
Faye were the only people who could stop her, or were I guess the only variables that could be set up to stop her? I'm going to say no, and here's why. The machine can only analyze what people are going to do in the near future or what they're currently planning. So I think it was too far out still. Okay. And at the time the machine would have had to set everything in motion for your theory to work, Kara Kara may still have been a CIA operative, a wet work operative, and Reese was apparently – or no, she was on the run. So maybe she was still – she was in the planning phases. But I just think it was too far forward. And so like if you – even if you go all the way – because originally I was thinking maybe you were talking about it being all the way back to when Kara and Reese were first burned or first tried to be killed. And that was that was way too long ago for this to work right. because ultimately the operation was a few years ago. I forget what year it was. Was it 2009? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, did it involve the machine though? Oh, it did. It absolutely did. But it it was just that the operation and decision to kill Reese and Kara was made because anyone and everyone who comes into contact with the machine needed to be eliminated so that only the original five or six, if you count Finch, knew about it. So I think it was a decision by the guys behind the machine that wanted to eliminate everyone who came into contact with, with the machine because the machine was or at least some of the source code was stolen and that was what they were going to to recover it and once they had it recovered they sent the signal and then they were eliminated or attempted to be eliminated so everything Kara has done since that time has been a result of that incident and sort of as a means of revenge upon those who burned her and tried to kill her and Reese so I, I don't think the machine was involved in bringing everyone together to try and stop Kara because Kara wasn't a viable threat yet well, now, do you think the machine at this point now knows Kara's a threat? Yes, especially after what happened today. Because I almost feel like it works that it sees somebody do something and then goes back and looks up footage with about them to piece together what it thinks is going to happen. Yeah, I which think is it's, why we have the flashback scenes. Well, I think that's. I think the flashback are for our own right. understanding. I think the machine. Yeah, it can collate, but I don't know how much storage it has or how much access it has because i mean it has access to everything but i don't know if it can store a year's worth a a month's worth a week's worth you know it seems infinite at this point it does but thinking about it from a logistics standpoint storage takes up space and the more space it takes up the more of a liability it is and the chances of it being found well is it possible they can access other servers and store information yeah. out in the cloud. Yeah, it, that yeah. is a possibility for sure. But it wouldn't be as secure. And maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe it just right. it just doesn't need to because it without it being all brought together, it's not Intel. It's just it's just source. Yeah, and you can't stop the source, as uh, Mister Universe would say. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it's just things to keep in mind. I think it's fun to kind of see how this machine works and puts it, puts it all together. <laughs> Oh, I loved your idea because it got us talking about it. Yeah. I just didn't think that it could go that far back or that it was working that far back. But right. uh, but as for an, uh, a theory, a crackpot theory, it's a great one. Well, and I love that scene where all the phones started ringing. Yeah, like it was panicked. Yeah, like it gave the it gave the the machine emotion, and I do think. And as the show goes on, it's gonna appear more and more of a team member as much as someone like Fusco or Carter. Yeah, we've definitely talked about that, and I agree with you on that. All right. 
Well, with that, it's time to go into another fair share of Crackpot Theories. God, one of our favorite shows. This might be the last time we could throw out Crackpot Theories, Nico. I don't know. I think we're still going to have I think we're still going to have theories after the fact. I think oh, that's no. the kind of kind of series this is. <laughs> oh boy. Well, this is our last, I guess, theories before the end theories and we don't get any more answers. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I, anyway, we're going to talk about the Fridge episode that went back to some of my favorites. And that's the episode entitled The Boy Must Live. While Walter tries to learn more about the mysterious Donald after Michael's revelation, Widmark undertakes his own quest for knowledge. I tried very hard not to expect too much from this episode because episodes that immediately precede the closing chapters of a series have a spotty history at best. It's not easy being the episode that links the final season's plot with the events that must unfold to bring a satisfying end to the whole series, especially for a TV show with a complex history like Fringe has. Episode stories placed in this awkward position have to bear the burden of keeping things interesting while also serving as a setup for the climax in the finale. It's a very delicate and difficult balance to maintain. Some shows did it amazingly well. Others, eh, not so much. I think Fringe, sadly, may have ended up in the latter category, but though, to be honest, it was probably somewhere in between because this wasn't a terrible episode. But although I think this episode had some flaws, it certainly set the stage for a final Fringe Friday next week that should prove quite interesting and really, it's going to be great. This week's story wasted little time getting into some very interesting things, however. In no time at all, Walter's in the sensory deprivation tank with his trunks off, and it was a nice touch having them float around near his head. It was pretty funny. That might be our last joke. Walter's trip down tank-induced memory lane is helpful in terms of providing a recap and some story structure, even though it wasn't particularly interesting material being revealed. But when Winmark takes a, a... jaunt centuries into the future as easily if he's just going across town, I felt like things would get even more exciting. But when Mark's meeting essentially boiled down to his boss, a new big bad introduced in the penultimate episode, really? Isn't it a little late for that? But anyways, Winmark's boss tells him no, and in an overlong scene that didn't show much other than Winmark's obsession with squashing the resistance, which was already established quite well, I thought. It was the first of a string of events that really piqued my interest in this episode with clever teases, only to sort of disappoint me with lackluster resolutions in this episode. Though I do think we're going to get a lot more resolution in the finale. And so in that sense, it was it was a good setup. So Dan, we talked a number of times about the penultimate episode of both seasons and series and how delicate the balance of setting up the finale can be while not being a complete stinker of an episode. I said that I felt that this was not a great episode, but also was not a bad setup for next week's series finale. How would you rate this penultimate episode of Fringe? I'm going to call it an act one of a three-part story. Yeah. That's that's really what it was. An act one is slow setup. And that's yep. what this was. Exactly what this was. But it had some great moments. Much better penultimate episode than a, a lot of other shows. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'll, I'll give it that, and really some great Walter moments. Yeah. And and that's that's a huge thing. Also, you know, the stuff with the future with Widmark, I think that Widmark is going to go against that big bad he was talking about. Oh, absolutely. So I don't, I don't really think he's the big bad. I think Widmark is still the big bad because he is going to do something bad. Right. That's going to threaten everything. So I think he'll remain the villain because I think that that head observer just wants to leave things alone. Yeah, they've already calculated, and in this episode, they said it was 99.999% probability of success at this time period, and that that was their best chance of doing what they are planning to do, so right. that's why they were there. So yeah, I agree, I agree, and we already saw when Mark go against those orders, because right. he still was pursuing the uh, rebels. Well, and, and we know that observers are capable of great emotion, just based on what we found out about September in this episode. Yeah. So I think if they're capable of love, they're also still capable of hate. And obsession and, and jealousy. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't think this uh, the, the implant is as up to snuff as they think it is. Hmm. And I think yeah. Peter's experience may come into play with that as well. Yeah, I like that. You know, even though season five has hit some of Fringe's trademark emotional apexes, it has also spent a lot of time lacking forward progress. There was a well-defined goal this season to stop the observers. But when you think about it, not much else really happened. That's not a terrible thing. And I'm repeating myself, but the show we're watching isn't the fringe of old that we always talked about every week. It's a little bit different this time. Too much of this season was spent avoiding loyalist checkpoints and hiding from the observers. One thing that made Fringe such a science fiction triumph over the years was its ability to weave compelling personal stories into the season-long tales of multi-universal destruction and doomsday machines. But season 5 has been light on substance with regard to our characters' personal journeys. Aside from the whole Edda dying thing, of course, which was excellent. And yes, Peter did the whole observerification thing, which I enjoyed immensely i did i really loved that but that was wrapped up quickly and didn't have a significant influence on the main story after after all or at least so far we haven't seen it you did just mention dan that you think that that's going to play a big part in what happens in the finale and i agree so it, it it'll probably make much more sense after the finale but one thing i felt this episode did perfectly was to resolve some of those complaints we've had about this season lacking an emotional connection to the characters. The return of September and the realization, though really, didn't we all suspect that Michael was September's son? Or I think we even said something to that effect in last week's discussion or in the last discussion we had. But it did provide a great payoff. He looks more human than we've ever seen him before, and it was remarkable to see him like this. I was eagerly waiting epic stories of how he ended up this way, and we got exactly that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Revealed that the other observers removed his device and he became human again as a punishment, which answers the question of his appearance. And I love the line where he said he didn't feel it was a punishment at all. Yes. That was outstanding. that, That was great. He then recounts the story in a pretty mundane manner, laying it out all out in his living room in a deadpan voice as if he were just telling us what he bought at the store yesterday. Now, I explained this to myself that this seemingly mundane, monotone delivery was due to the logical likelihood that Donald's implant permanently fried or at least damaged his capacity to feel emotions fully, as 
threatened to do with Peter. But the scene needed to be more than logical. It needed to be meaningful. And we got that with the realization that, that his observations of Walter as a father that stirred paternal emotions in him that led to his decision to save Michael in the first place and essentially started the whole resistance movement and the September's involvement in stopping the Observer invasion slash occupation. So, Dan, what did you think of the answer to last episode's cliffhanger revelation that Donald is September and how he became Donald? Our theories were off, but not really as far off as one might expect. Did you like the explanation better in the episode, or would you rather have it had been your theory or my John Connor Terminator theory? Well, I think the way they did it's perfectly because it goes back to the main central theme of this show. Yes. I've always thought about it is the relationship between a father and a son. That's what this show is. That's what it's all about. And you've got to go back to it in the finale. That's got to be a central theme because they did that perfectly in this episode. That's where they went with this. It was great. It was a huge twist on why he saved Peter all those years ago. Did not see that one coming. The end result of it, I did see coming where I felt Walter had to die to end the big final threat for the series. And you know I've said that several times throughout our discussions. Right. That that's had to happen. So I was kind of disappointed that... I, I don't know what to say. I felt like I was kind of disappointed that I was right. But it's not over yet. They may still surprise me. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I called it for years. Yeah. You know, I, I thought they would trick me again. I think we'll get into that in a moment when we jump into our thoughts about how we think next week's going to happen. Because I, I do have a couple questions for you. Okay. Um, and it was so great that they went back to some of the biggest moments in the development between Walter and his relationship with his son. Like the White Tulip episode. Loved it. That's probably one of my favorite episodes of the series. Because the fact that they went back to it and it made it a significant thing. I mean, that was huge. And that is the one episode where I wanted to fight for this show to stay on the air like no one's business. Yeah. When I saw that episode, that get forever made Fringe a part of me. And so I'm so glad that they went back to that. Just out- outstanding stuff. And then giving Walter his memories back. From I the love first, that. First three seasons. That just added so much more oomph to the end of the show. And all those elements of the show needed to play a factor in the end of the series. So I'm glad they gave it back to him. So it is. And we essentially got our Walter back at the end. Yes. So yeah. very satisfied on, the, on those perspectives. And again, even though this episode was a little slow, I feel strongly it's going to pay off in the end. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Donald soon shifted to a story that lays out the true origins of the Observers, which I found very, very interesting. That was (laughs) Terminator-like. This tale is interspersed with cutaway shots of the future world that that the Observers are born into. Now, that was a great way to tell the story. I loved the flash-forward method, much like the flashbacks I love in Lost, Person of Interest, and Once Upon a Time. Then the focus shifts to Michael slash the Observer Kid, and we learn so much more about his origins as well. Those long-standing questions that have existed since the season one episode, Inner Child, when we first are introduced to him, are finally answered, and I'm happy about that. But sadly, the answers come with a cliché. I'm your father moment, although it played a lot better than maybe it could have. It was very, you know, I felt like making a Luke, I am your father joke but at the same time this is what this story is about it's fathers and sons but there was also a disconnect with donald saying that he cares so much for the 
for the kid because in that first episode, Inner Child, he was kind of dirty, had been left alone for a while while September was unable to get back to him. So in a sense, it was how much I love him, but I can't take care of him. Sort of a a great parallel, I thought, with the Walter and Peter relationship, how it broke down and then ultimately was was fixed. So my thoughts are a little scrambled there because I'm not sure if it was really amazing or if i'm just wanting it to be amazing (laughs) so but dan did you love the observer flash forward scenes as much as i did and their use in this episode and do you think it was a brilliant way of explaining something we've been wondering since we first met these bald baddies did you buy september slash donald's explanation of michael being his son and the story of michael's importance to the plan work well or did it work well enough for you in this in this episode or or what we think is going to happen next week well as i said that the father and son thing is such an important aspect of this show right it makes sense that that is the end game to defeat the observers it fits into it perfectly the only thing is you know it gets funny because you know we've passed the torch god who's important to the end of the story you know we went from you know peter to olivia to edda to michael back to peter and olivia you know, who's the main central hero at the end of this thing? So they need to figure out, I mean, because again, now we're at this point where Olivia has no importance to anything. So that's where I'm, confu- that's where I'm confused. Because, I mean, don't you feel that one of those main characters needs to be the key to the end of this? I think that they are going to be what ultimately gets the boy into position, Walter and the boy into position. So they are going to be important. And I think ultimately they're going to be the ones that are saved and they're the ones that are going to make sure humanity doesn't go down the path that becomes the so Michael is going to be important in the sense that he's going to shape the future. But I think Olivia and Peter are going to do just as much to shape the future as well. Okay. Well, And they're going to be there to actually stop the observers and be the heroes that allow Michael to succeed. Okay. Well, as for the flash forward stuff, yeah, I'm with you. I, I like that stuff. Oh, yeah. Especially the ev- evolution of the observer. Yeah. They showed how they were born and it, they showed like, you know, it developed. That was really kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, very, very great film. Very impressive visuals there. Really well done special effects. It didn't even seem like CGI to me, the way they did some of that. Yeah. It seemed like some old school practical effects, which I was impressed with. I'll have to say that. My other question for you is, now, when September hit Michael in the past... Was this the September that we knew in the first season that did this? Yes. Okay, so he was full-blown Observer at the time that he did this. That's why he kept interfering with... Yes, it, it was not Donald who did it. It was it was September. Before, he was, he was always interfering or messing with the, the plans as he was going back in time because he kept... So throughout the whole back- series was him doing this and hiding Michael. Well... I don't know exactly at what point he hit Michael. I think it was before he left for, or no, it was after he initially left on this, the science, science expedition. Okay. It was after they had returned at one point to make a, a report or something because he was affected by his interactions with Peter or with uh, Walter and seeing Walter and Peter together. So it was at that point that he went, back and saved his son because i think the first time that uh the observers that september met walter was when he caused the distraction to make him 
unable to finish the cure yes. to save Peter's life. Yes. And I think at that point, that was before he started protecting Michael. Yes, I agree. Okay. And then the next time he saw him at the lake was when he started. Yes. It was probably after he dropped Michael off. Absolutely, because he okay. said the boy is important. And he didn't mean Peter. He meant Michael. And so that took place in between those two points. Yes. Time. Okay. So I'm just trying to follow where it, where it all goes. And then by the time Olivia and Peter got into the picture with the story, he already had hidden them for a long period of time. Well, we don't know because their their timelines, because they, he's a time traveler, okay. we don't know when and where it all happened yet. Because it's just interesting that Michael got left by himself in Inner Child. I'm surprised he didn't leave him with anybody, or maybe there something went wrong when he tried to transfer him back, and he ended up like in the sewer or something. I don't know. Well, I think when he brought him back originally, he probably tried to set him up like he did in the last episode or two episodes ago when we found Michael again in the future. Yeah. But it didn't work the first time. So then the second time he made sure he found people who were the right fit that would take care of him and would be parents to him. Maybe it didn't work the first time or whatever he did was not work uh, successful. Or maybe he didn't have the emotional capabilities to understand it at that point. Exactly. Okay. That's good. That's good. Glad we're throwing this out here. Yeah. See, Um, making the ideas come together again. Man, I'm going to miss us doing this. (laughs) Yeah. So finally, we learn that Walter is going to sacrifice himself to redeem his mistakes that started all the way back at Reardon Lake. Dan, since my theory postulates that the timelines will be reset and that Edda will be alive again, as the timeline will most likely reset to the day the observers would have invaded, and thus Walter will also most likely survive the self-sacrifice, does that diminish his sacrifice at all? And do do you agree that Walter will live if everything goes according to the plan? So do you, do you think he's going to live? And if he is going to live and he can think that far ahead, does that diminish his sacrifice? And my last question, could the timeline reset to a different time than what we originally thought? And could that really make it so that Olivia and Peter never met? Is that possible? If that happened, would that kill this show's emotional impact? I'm going to tell you this right now. They have not let us down. No, they haven't. They have not let us down. They've given us a satisfying ending every time. I don't think that's going to happen. Could they pull a lost here, though? <laughs> oh, I'd be livid. Ugh. I'd be livid, especially when they've done such a good job. To drop the ball right at the end, go up. But what scares me here is, if they make it so the observers never existed, doesn't that mean Peter would never be saved and yeah. pulled out of the lake? That's that's what I'm saying. No, no, I'm wrong. If the observers never existed, Walter would never be distracted. Right, and he would end up being saved in the other side, and thus Olivia and Peter would never meet. Oh, oh God, that's a mess. <laughs> I think this is what's going to happen. I think that I think Walter has to die for retribution. But I think through that death, he will keep Etta, Peter, and Olivia together. I think that's what his sacrifices is going to have to do or ends up doing. So it doesn't completely stop the observers. It changes them so that they are people who come back and observe but don't interfere or something like that. Yes. And that's a possibility. And that's a way that it could cause everything to work out and that September had to fix everything because he inadvertently screwed things up. And so that portion still goes forward. And then the observer, the observers were never intended to be occupants or uh, to invade their plan was only to learn 
from the past so that they maybe could fix the future. Also, just so you know, this may throw monkey wrenches in a ton of our ideas, but the other side is going to be involved in the next episode. Right, I saw that. So it, I don't know how that's going to work, too. I think they're going to shoot, or we saw them shooting up Olivia in the pre- promos for next week with Cortexafan. Yep. She's going to jump over to the other side, going to get Lincoln Lee and get Bolivia or Folivia. And please, Charlie. I don't think you're going to get Charlie. Oh, but, man. But I do think they're going to grab them. They're going to bring them over for more, for backup, you know, and, or more people that they can trust. And because they're going to go head on, full head on assault against the observers to give Michael the opportunity to succeed or Walter and Michael to succeed. So I do think they're going, because to get Michael, they're going to have to break into the observer headquarters or into wherever they've taken Michael. And so they're going to have to do an assault on an observer stronghold. And so there's going to be the possibility that some people are going to die and they're going to need backup. And so they're going to go see Olivia and Winmark duke it out. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking because if she used to go sex a fad, she'll have the superpowers. Yeah. Finally see her superpowers. We'll have her powers back. That'll be awesome to let loose. Fridge uh, creators break the bank. Spend Fox's money. That's all I (laughs) I, have to say. I think we're going to see Lincoln Lee and Bolivia together. They're going to be, they're going to be married or together in some capacity. But don't they have to be older? I don't know how that works. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another trick. That they would have to be older. You're right. Maybe they're gonna make up them. That'd be cool. Well, I'm also interested to see what the state of the other side is as well. What's happened in the past, you know, 20 years or so. I think it's going to be in very good shape. I think it's going to have re- recovered from the because the the deterioration of their world Stop. had stopped. So I think it's going to have accelerated their technological advances to the point where we were and then beyond, you know, and and got caught up to where they should have been. And so I think you will no longer see Zeppelins. I think you will see airplanes. And I don't think you will see a lot of the, you know, they did have a lot of high tech, but they also had a lot of low tech as well. So I think you're going to see a lot more high tech. Okay. And uh, last two things. There are rumors rumbling. Well, one, I know there's a rumor rumbling. The other one, I'm not sure. Uh, first one is, you think we'll see uh, Nimoy in the finale? And also, there's rumors rumbling around that David Robert Jones might return. Do you think we'll see either one of those characters? David Robert Jones is a higher likelihood than Nimoy. But okay. there's always the chance that it could be Nimoy. But I I just don't see it happening. I think he is out Okay, not even a quick cameo scene or anything? I think if it is, it'll be from stock footage. Okay. Previously shot footage. Not stock footage, but previously shot footage. Yeah, well, it could be awesome if they could get him in there. I don't know. Yeah, it it, it could still be very, very good. We could see a scene of him from the last time he was on the other side when he and Olivia met. And we could see some of that footage, maybe stuff that hit the cutting room floor or something. But I don't think we're going to see new things from him. I'd say I'm going to say right now we're going to see a lot of old faces in this next episode. We have to see Broyles. Yes, well, yeah, and he, and he was shown in the trailer. But I, I, I have this bad feeling that he's he's going to die. Yes. I think we're going to get a Nina-like scene yeah. with him as well. And hopefully that they will be back alive after everything's all said and done with. That is my hope for them as well. That'd be great. All right, so I think that wraps it up. 
I hate it to be over because I have fun having these discussions with you, but I guess we got one more. Yep. And also, we are going to be having a Fridge live show the night of the finale. That's going to begin at 9.15, and it's going to run through 11, and I will be joined with Michael for that show. Unfortunately, due to the times, I run on Central Time, so the show's going to start at 9.15. I don't think Nico's going to be able to join us. We are going to discuss the finale in ATA episode 108, so you don't have to worry about that. You're going to hear Nico's thoughts on it. But it's going to start at 9.15 Central, 10.15 Eastern, which hopefully will be right after the episode aired, and we will be joined by that episode by several of my friends who have been Fringe fans over the years, because they're very enthusiastic about the show. So they will be joining Michael and I throughout the night to talk about this outstanding episode. And also, you can join us in the chat room or that podcast episode. Okay, you will be able to access it actually in two places. I found a way for it to be able to air on our ATA website, got across the airways.com. So after the fridge finale, jump on across the airways.com and you can check out our live stream there. And um, if you have a hard time accessing it there, you can always also access it on our Ustream page. And you can do that by clicking the link right at the top of our website. When you load up our website, right underneath the big banner that says Across the Airwaves, there's several menu options, and just click on the one that says Ustream Channel. So with that, we're going to move on to our Airwaves Rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pope from Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. MT. We know drama. Where Nico's going to take it away with his thoughts on the Family Guy episode, Space Cadet. To boost Chris's self-esteem, Peter and Lois send him to space camp. When camp ends and the Griffins come to pick Chris up, they accidentally are launched into outer space, and it's up to Chris to land land the family safely back on Earth. About the only thing great about this episode was the Monty Python introduction, the second in the last month of our shows to pay homage to the great comedy troupe. Alas, it was not, in fact, a full-blown tribute, but rather a more of a one-off joke. Too bad. If they can do not one, but several Star Wars spoofs, why not a Monty Python tribute? It could have been fun seeing the gang speak with terrible British accents. Oh well, it was not to be, but that's not to say this episode was terrible. Instead, what we got was a plotline in which even Lois acknowledged that Chris wasn't the brightest bulb in the bunch. Unfortunately for Chris, he overheard that conversation between his mom and dad, leading to a shame spiral that led him to want or slash need to attend a special school when he started to have issues at regular school. With a bevy of unpleasant choices at hand, Chris understandably went for the most fun of the bunch, space camp. It was only a matter of time before chaos ensued and ultimately leading to the entire family getting launched into space in the space shuttle. Thankfully, Autopilot got our beloved family back on terra firma, but not without a few hijinks along the way, including Meg getting accidentally shot into space, much like the alien at the end of, you know, uh, Alien. Some great lines here and there, but this episode was one more for visual puns, both on and off camera. Ultimately, this was an average Family Guy episode that neither excited nor disappointed me too much. Yeah, so let's jump into the Simpsons episode, Springfield Preppers. Homer joins the Springfield Preppers, an off-the-grid survivalist group whose leader has set up a top-secret retreat outside of town to prepare for the end of the world. But Marge grows skeptical of the group's alarmist shenanigans. 
in this Homer goes to prep school sort of episode, the Simpsons gets involved with a survivalist group thanks to a gravelly voiced paranoid individual, actor, singer Tom Waits, who befriends Homer. This pedestrian episode, however, follows a common Simpsons template of depicting human beings as horrible savages before swerving at the very end to offer a more optimistic, Marge approved view of the world. The one question hanging over this plot is how to handle the politics. Without getting into names, let's just say that most of the people stockpiling assault rifles and bags of grain in their basement are not happy with the direction of the United States in the past few years, and they're probably not celebrating the upcoming inauguration either. Homer Goes to Prep School is discreet about why the preppers, not preppies, are convinced of an impending collapse with no mention of same-sex marriage or newfangled light bulbs. Instead, the YouTube video that convinces Homer the end of civilization is near depicts society as a shaky house of cards with such dangers as Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Bank chairman, and my favorite, the 17-year cicada cycle. Homer, who is an exceptionally empty vessel in this episode, is thus prepped to believe the worst about people. He joins the survivalist group and starts hiding the family's food in a secret room in the basement. And as he explains to Marge, the apocalypse is coming. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe never, but it's coming. And soon, despite 23 years of Springfieldians turning to an angry mob at the drop of a hat, they coped admirably with the power outage, which only lasted a few days. That's about how long you'll likely remember this rather lifeless episode. Wow, it sounds like an episode of Revolution. Yeah, actually, <laughs> quite a few people mentioned that in in the comments on this episode on TV.com and a few places else I was looking at. It really... It was like a bad a bad Simpsons episode, decent revolution episode. So technically they captured the feel of revolution beautifully. Yeah. With that lifeless episode feel. Indeed. So with that, I think it's about time to jump into a show that is anything but lifeless. Our Tuesday night show, New Girl, with the episode Cabin. When Jess and Sam plan on a cabin retreat, she invites Nick and Angie and discovers it was a bad idea. And Winston attempts to educate Schmidt on race relations. New Girl kicked off the new year with a cabin getaway weekend involving Jess, Sam, Nick, and Angie, which we all know was a recipe for disaster disaster if there ever was one. Yes. And it wasn't long before Jess and Nick learned the hard way that fours a crowd, especially when borderline hallucinogens are involved. The real highlight of this storyline was the delightful addition of Absinthe, which kicked the tension and comedy into high gear. Surprisingly, though, Nick turned out to be the sober one of the bunch, briefly at least. And Sam, Jess, and Angie tripped out in a hilarious fashion. I don't think I feel it. I can't believe I'm the sober one. That's actually never happened in my life. Who asked Flash Rod? Me. One syllable. One syllable. Movie. Gattaca. Oh, I want to be them. I have to run upstairs for a sec. I have it on good authority. My bed has disappeared. Meanwhile, Schmidt and Winston shared a hilarious B plot line as Winston taught Schmidt a valuable lesson in race relations. This naturally started out with a series of ignorant but oftentimes amusing antics from Schmidt, who believed that a Rastafarian cat might remedy his friend's desperately needed cultural journey. John Rastafarian. Take this damn thing off my head. Okay. I'm sorry. You're right. 
Forget the hat. Just, I made a mistake. I just, Winston, tonight is about you. I want, I want to be the black friend that you never had. I have black friends. I want you to feel supported. I want you to be able to do the things that you don't feel like I understand. The story ultimately culminated in a great scene with the boys attempting to buy crack cocaine from some burly dude on the street, climaxing with all three of them absolutely terrified and tossing their wallets to the person they assumed was robbing them. Okay, let me out, right? Schmidt, Schmidt, Schmidt I was just messing with you, man. Okay, I was just trying to see how far your stupid white guilt would take you. Have you ever done crack? Man, hell no, I've never done crack. Man, why do you think I've done crack? Because I'm black. Because you told me the whole story about you doing crack. I thought you guys just needed directions okay let me out okay sir oh, just okay. calm oh, down all right be okay, cool fine. okay look just, you want it you want it no 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 it was a brief exchange, but also probably the most cleverly written scene of the episode, and it definitely elevated this B plotline to A-worthy status. Yes. Great episode. Really, I thought the B plot was the best part of it. All right. But with that, we're going to jump into the, probably my favorite Tuesday night show as it returns with the season four premiere, and that's Justified with the episode Hole in the Wall. Raylan's car is stolen from underneath his nose, with a newly cuffed perp locked in the trunk. He sets out tracking down the vehicle with the help of Constable Bob Sweeney, played by Penn Oswald, who really seems to be getting around right now. Got Indeed. television. Indeed. With him recently being on bird notice. Justified is my absolute favorite undervalued TV show. Besides Fringe, Game of Thrones, and Doctor Who, there is not another show on TV that I am more excited to see each week. The best series seem to begin their peak at season three. The writers would have enough background, setup, exposition, and depth of character to start cooking with propane and propane accessories. By the end of season three, there'd be some kind of climax involving all of the main characters and there'd be some long-lasting repercussions. This is where Justified sits. Season three was incredible. It was elite-level television, well above the fray, and it looks like they've, they're ready to build even more and greater things this season. The good news for us viewers is that Justified has flown under the radar pretty well. It's garnered the perfect balance of success to get more seasons, but not enough for the writing staff and the actors to get plucked off one by one. They've maintained a strong power structure from the beginning and have led their characters through their own natural trials and tribulations. Nothing was forced. The characters, with the exception of some tweaks to Boyd and Ava along the way, have been incredibly consistent. Justified is set up for a long peak. Now... Let me finally get into this week's episode, Hole in the Wall. The long view is important, especially at the beginning. We were introduced to some important ideas, particularly the bag and the ID of a certain Waldo truth. This information is so important that it's worth killing over. And meanwhile, to hold us over, we're given a quick narrative about Raylan catching some young wannabe hooligans trying to steal his car, which eventually led us to the bag that I referred earlier. Raylan was led on a wild goose chase that ended with a teenage girl getting stabbed by Constable Bob, as Dan mentioned, was played by Patton Oswald, in the foot and Raylan getting his man once again. This was very tight writing. One thing led to another very neatly. Really, one of the things you can always say about Justified is the writing is excellent. And tonight's outstanding season four premiere, Hole in the Wall, felt like coming home and checking back in with old friends that always have a wonderful retort for even your wittiest of barbs. But it's how the show makes viewers feel like this that proves there's something special going 
going on here. Justified makes great television look so darn easy. The series is an entity unto itself that feels alive, with Raylan Givens as its soul. Justified is back, and it's back with a confidence that makes us feel like it never left. That's the thing about this show, and it's colorful characters. It doesn't feel like it's back in our lives. It feels like we're back in its life. We always know that coming back to Into Justified, Raylan Boyd and a whole bunch of hillbillies will be waiting for us. But what we don't know is what new faces we'll be squaring off against this season. Season 2 gave us the mean mom Mags Bennett, and Season 3 gave us a, us a demented Robert Quarles and a conniving Elston Limehouse. And what we walked back into with Season 4 was an ice-cold cold case and a bag of snakes. I can't tell you how excited I am for this. I loved Season 2 largely because of Mags' presence as the root of all evil in that run. Season 3, while a lot of fun, the story felt crowded with both Quarles and Limehouse, each one great enough to hold his own season, demanding attention and complicating things at the same time. Justified is so adept at crafting perfect dialogue and strengthening even the most minor of characters that I don't think it needs more than one dominant bad guy, but it can clearly handle more than just one arc. So how did the writers address the problems that I felt they had in season three, now in season four? It gave us our bad dude in the snake charming preacher, Billy, from the Pacifics and Radio Flyers, Joe Mazzello, and then thickened the stew with an old mystery surrounding a bag so important to Arlo Givens that he slit the throat of the county jail's library cart guy. Guys, this is going to be a fun season, and I am super excited. Great episode. Great start to season four. All right. So with that, we're going to jump on ship okay. with Last Resort and the episode Damn the Torpedoes. And unfortunately, there was no summary this week, so I'll just jump right into the episode. I may be wrong, but I think this was the episode of Last Resort was the one being made when the word came down that the show had been officially canceled. That being the case, it's doubtful any major change could be made to this particular episode and script. It was worth noting how full throttle the story is moving now. There are huge plot shifts happening left and right, and while there's so many characters and scenarios that everything can't hold the same weight, and it's doubtful everything will get equal payoff in the end, overall this is very exciting and engrossing to watch and fold. Is Marcus the hero of this series, or a good man who's going too far? This episode began to tip towards the latter scenario, and had several of the other characters begin to feel that way about a man they respected so much. Marcus was in the game of chicken with a U.S. destroyer, whose captain was sure he would never fire on them. But it soon became clear that captain was very wrong. And while Grace and King managed to MacGyver a way to save lives while still firing at the other ship, it was made 100% clear that Marcus would have fired regardless by the end, underlining in a whole crap scene in which he grabbed Grace and threw her against the bulkhead, furious at her undermining his orders. A plot development I think would have still happened if this show were being continued, but not nearly this fast or this abruptly. That scene was one of two excellent scenes in the app. The other was Sam and Prosser's heart-to-heart about Marcus, as Sam admitted he felt Marcus was not the man he once was, ultimately leading to Sam agreeing to join Prosser's mutiny plan, provided Marcus is not killed. You have to wonder if that is possible now, not only because some of the other men are more willing to kill Marcus than Sam and Prosser, but also because it's hard to think Marcus will be taken out of power quietly or easily. I also wonder what Grace would do now when faced with Sam and Prosser actively trying to remove Marcus, as she was clearly shaken when the possibility of him firing a fully armed torpedo at another U.S. vessel became a real possibility. 
in the midst of this, it was harder to get involved in the in DC scenario, even as huge things were occurring. With a full plan to forcibly remove the president and vice president was underway, and to replace them with Ernie Hudson, no less. No, he's playing a character, but come on, Ernie Hudson. Winston from the Ghostbusters is president. Exactly, Winston as president. <laughs> There's less time spent in the storyline each week, so it feels a bit more disjointed, especially since more often it occurs off camera like admiral shepherd being broken out of jail and kylie assembling so many power players but when u.s generals are being killed by other high echelon officials when they won't go along with this all or nothing plan things are obviously still pretty damn intense in the dc storyline with so little time left i'm guessing the next final two episodes of last resort will be even more laser focused it may have been incredibly truncated from the original but the good news is that the stakes have risen to massive heights at this point, making it feel like an appropriate place to go into the endgame, even allowing for it being much more rushed than we originally hoped. I'm excited to see how it all plays out, and I'm going to continue to watch these last two episodes. It hasn't really let me down so far. Yes, it's, it's definitely more rushed but it's still good storytelling all right so with that we're gonna jump into probably the best episode of elementary this season besides maybe the pilot with the episode m so a British criminal with strong ties to Sherlock's past has showed up in New York Watson isn't sure whether to take on a new client this week's episode turned out to be the show slapping us with the most intense episode of the series so far, at last dropping on us Sherlock's loved arch nemesis Moriarty, if only by proxy. In the original source material of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories, Moriarty was a criminal mastermind staying above reproach while orchestrating a vast and subtle criminal ring. First, I thought, okay, here's a nice little twist. They went entirely lock, stock, and two smoking barrels on Moriarty. Of course, we would find, once he was strung up on some scaffolding like a leather-clad Jesus, that the big charismatic brawler was merely a pawn with Moriarty as a big bad us we haven't yet met wise decision i think actually suspenseful long-form art that has nothing to do with his sobriety great move elementary and johnny lee miller was so fantastic in this episode his acting in the torch sequence and throughout a very demanding script was frankly masterful so much sensitivity in his portrayal of an inner moral debate that wasn't necessarily on the page and he also brought so much heart talking about irene lucy Liu matched him her own restrained way watson out sherlock this week coming up with small details and sussing out sherlock's security system and his abbreviated crime spree her emotional moment when she admitted she loved the work and his reply was one of the best of the series so far finally our two acting greats are being given material to display their skills so here's my newest theory and i'm hoping irene adler's death was actually faked so moriarty could use her criminal wiles in some larger scheme believe they would kill off what could be such a useful character and making her death respond for his dependency would put her directly across from watson as a foil and an opponent if she came back to life in the states also worth noting that for an american take on sherlock it's funny how all the major events have already happened in london and all the ma- major characters are based in london not a complaint but it's funny how it seemingly never crossed the creator's mind to do an american counterpart of 
Sherlock rather than actually a British Sherlock coming to America. Great episode as we knew it would be when we discussed last week that it was going to be the introduction of Moriarty. Yeah, good to hear that's going well. And I would say your theory about Irene Adler sounds pretty solid. Pretty likable thing. I think so. Yeah, pretty likely thing for Raphael. Yeah, I agree. All right, it's time to jump into a new section, the voicemail feedback section. The call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone. Please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. With this week's voicemails from Michael J. Petty about Fringe and Wu S. Kim about The Shield Show and the news from the Nico section. Hey, Dan and Nico. ATA Corps member Michael here. I just watched the penultimate episode of Fringe entitled The Boy Must Live, and now a lot of things throughout the series that weren't explained earlier this season come together for me. First off, the moment Michael appeared in Season 5, I knew that he was September's son, and I was glad that I was right. Otherwise, I'm saying saving Peter and Walter at Raiden Lake back in Season 1 would not have made complete sense. I will say I did not expect September to be Donald until the last episode, but they explained that plot point very well, I thought, in this episode. One of the things I was most grateful for in this episode was that Walter got his memories of the original timeline back. It made me so happy and helped him to understand more of what was going on in the current alternate timeline. I was very happy about that. Sad that he has to sacrifice himself, though. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out. Now, as I said before, this plan to rid the world of the, of the observers means that ultimately many of the things that took place in both the original and alternate timelines would never have happened. From seeing that promo of the two-hour season finale next week, it looked like Peter and Olivia may never be able to meet in this new timeline that is created. Because if you look closely at Peter at the end of the promo, when Olivia is dosed with Cortex fan that traveled back to the alternate universe, can't wait to see Lincoln and Box Olivia, by the way. She sees the other Peter from the current Earth, and from what it looks like, it looks like he's dead. So if the timelines are restored, then that means either one of two things. The original and alternate timelines are merged, or Walter was never able to cross universes, leaving the original Peter from the current Earth die. The alternate Peter from the other Earth, which is our Peter that we see now, would never be able to cross over to meet Olivia. Therefore, there's no Edda, really, to win the war for. I know some of this will be a lot to understand for some people, but I think you two will get what I'm getting at. I personally hope that a new timeline is born out of the ashes of the original and alternate timeline, and that the one thing that stays the same as the original 12 observers, September included, obviously, would still be allowed to exist, allowing September to save Peter and Walter at Raiden Lake, therefore putting the right future back on track. Also, according to what I heard from a few people on Twitter, and this is more to Dan's benefit than anyone else's, the man from Olivia's mind, a.k.a. Mr. X, from back in Season 3, is supposed to be a representation of the alternate timeline William Bell that we see in Season 4, who, in a way, did end up killing Olivia because of his plan to destroy both universes. Uh, I wanted to put that out there for Dan because I know he wanted that plot point resolved. And I know it's a cheap way to go out, but it's better than no explanation about that at all, because a lot of people were wondering about what was going to happen with the man who was supposed to kill Olivia. And apparently, that's how they ended up resolving it, of course, so it's been said. So, Dan, Nico, until the Fringe Finale live show on January 18th, an hour after the Fringe Finale ends in Central Time, I will catch you both on the airwaves, and I'll, you know, see you on Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast sometime coming season. So, thanks, guys, and I'll talk to you guys soon. 
Hey guys, it's me, Wu. This is primarily for the S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, or the S.H.I.E.L.D. discussion podcast, whenever you guys try on recording that. Reading through the character descriptions and what I've heard almost weekly now about this new Joss Whedon show, I'm on board with it. I'm not, I don't like the fact that Joss isn't the showrunner, because he's never, like, done that on any show that he's created, quite honestly. He's always been at least one the showrunner or one of the showrunners on either Angel and Firefly. I, looking at the rundown of the characters, this very much looks like a Joss Whedon show, though. I love the fact that Jed Whedon and his wife Melissa are going to be the showrunners, and I really like the I, that the character dynamics, if anybody's watched a, a Joss Whedon series, the character dynamics are similar, but they're still very different from what we've already seen with Joss Whedon shows. If it's going to be played like a Joss Whedon show, I'm, I'm more than on board with it. I just need to see the pilot before I can make a final decision. I'm warming up to this, to the idea of this series just because of the fact that it does look like it's gonna get shot and it does look like it's gonna get picked up. I made a comment to Andy and to Dan beforehand about this series, about there, there have been so many ideas at ABC and the CW that they have control over that just never get off the ground. This is one of the few instances that it looks like it will get off the ground, so I'm happy with that. I will watch the pilot. I'm, I'm very intrigued about how, which I am about all Joss Whedon series, how the dynamics between these characters within this group is going to work, and how they're going to bring, like, Agent Coulson back. Because technically, they said he, or Nick Fury said he was died, but he could have just been in, like, you know, medical stasis for, like, let's say, argument's sake, six months after the events of the Avengers happened. I hope to hear more from Andy about the S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, and I can't wait to see the S.H.I.E.L.D. pilot. Talk to you guys later, and oh, listen to Michael and I on our Arrow podcast, everyone. See you later. Catch you across the airwaves. Bye. All right. Well, I think we've talked everyone's ear off long enough for today. Kind of went over a little bit. Can we thank you guys for sticking with us? But uh, now we're going to move on to the closing. And Nico, do you want to tell everybody what's on, on the agenda for next week's episode? On next week's episode, we're back into the full swing of things with reviews of all our favorite shows. Once Upon a Time, Castle, Go On, Modern Family, Big Bang Theory, Person of Interest, and the series finale of French. We will also round out things with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on How I Met Your Mother's Mid-Season Return, Justified Elementary, and the penultimate Last Resort, as well as quite a few other things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out our blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, well, Supernatural may also be possibly added to that list. Also, if you want more Across the Airways content, because you can't wait for our next episode, you can check out ATA Retro Reviews, which is our podcast that covers TV shows that were canceled or went out on their own terms. We've also got Across the Airways DC Nation podcast, where we discuss episodes of Green Lantern, the animated series, Young Justice, the Smallville Season 11 comic book, written by our friend of the podcast, Brian Q. Miller. Got almost all the imaginative content out there that DC Comics provides for its fans. And last but not least, we have ATA's Logball Hunters, the Arrow Podcast. And that podcast is hosted by the members of our Across the Airways Corps, Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim. And they cover episodes of the hit CWTV series, Arrow, in more detail. And that show should begin picking up this week with the mid-season return episode 
Also, if you'd like, you could contact us with your crackpot theories about the fridge finale. Got all of the other shows we cover by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. Got there, you can email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. You can also click the like button on our website to access our Facebook page, which will keep you updated on our podcast episode releases. Can allow you to follow all the movie and TV news that Nico finds out for us during the week. Got reports on during our Across the Airways episodes. Okay, for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Get our Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like to share any of your crackpot theories on our show, you can leave us a voicemail, which we will play on air. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And also, we have a YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming television and movie events, as well as across the airways events, like our Fridge Live show. And also, on that page, we have a whole list of DC Nation shorts that you could watch that were aired on Cartoon Network that we cover on our DC Nation podcast. And also, we have movie trailers for a variety of films, including The Lone Ranger, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Iron Man 3, and Man of Steel. All big movies coming out this summer. We also have a trailer for Star Trek Into Darkness, if you're excited about that. And if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you can contact us, you can download our podcast box app where you can stay in contact with our podcast. You can listen to our podcast on your iPad or iPhone. And if you're on Android systems, you can do the same thing by downloading our Android app, which is available by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our website. So once again, for our ATA core members, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you, everybody. Have a great week. And I hope you enjoy that fridge finale and it blows your mind. See you, guys. Lifts, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.